You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast, which is brought to you by Tacticam. This is your home for all things outdoors in the Badger State. I'm your host, Josh Raley, and on the line with me is my co-host, Mr. Pierce Nellis. Pierce, what's up, buddy? Not much, man. Trout season's over. It's bittersweet, but shifting to deer mode. How are you doing? Doing good. Do you feel like you, when trout season ends for you, I mean, because it's, it is your job in a lot of ways, but it's also your passion and and I would dare say, like, one of your first passions in the outdoors, is that fair? Like, one, your first real, yeah. like, the thing that really got its hooks in you first? Mm-hmm. Yes, so, absolutely. No pun intended. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely no <laughs> pun intended in that. But but do you feel, like, all of a sudden, like, the permission now to go and chase whitetails at a different level when there's yep. when there aren't, like, when you can't go chase trout? Mm-hmm, 100%. Okay. Yeah, it was, uh, like I said, it was bittersweet. Um we, we had an absolutely fantastic wrap up to the season. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm in full whitetail mode now because we, yeah. we were leaving the Creek yesterday and I was, you know, it was a nice crisp breezy fall day, but the sun was kind of shining. It was a little bit overcast, um, you know, in the morning and that kind of came out and I was like, it just, it smells and it feels like deer season. I need yeah. to get my butt in a tree. Heck yeah. Dude. So I'm pretty to- pumped time to get there time to get there and get after it dude i mm-hmm. uh i still haven't been in a tree man it's it's sad and i don't know what to even do with myself right now but i've been investing heavily in november for the past week i've been mm-hmm. doing like home improvements around the house i bought a vacation package for my wife and me to go on a sweet trip to banff in june um like i've done all the family things. Kids were on fall break this week, so I spent a ton of time with them. Ton of time doing stuff around the house. I'm investing in November, like doing everything I can. I actually had two chances to get out, and I was like, nope. I don't have the intel here, at least. I don't have that early season feel good. Like, at best, I'm going to hang in a tree and hope that something walks by. Mm-hmm. And and I, I think my time is better spent doing something around here. So, um... Anyway, I hope I don't regret it. I got this text message. I'm going to show it to you through the camera. Folks can't see it, but I got that text Ooh. this morning. That's uh, Clint Campbell from Truth From The Stand podcast. Mm-hmm. He got it done on a stud, sitting in his kayak. Holy smokes. Uh, well, he wasn't sitting in his kayak. The, the deer is now, but he <laughs> shot a good one, so it had me thinking, like, man, wish I wish I would have been out, but um, but I haven't. Uh, dude, you've had you've had some stuff happen in the, I have. In the deer woods, so... Uh, last week we didn't have you on the intro, didn't get to talk to you about it, but tell me a little bit about what, uh, what went down. Yeah, I, uh, you know, I, I squeezed a sit in last Saturday morning, um, kind of took advantage of the cold front up there, just went in on a meat mission, um, and had a, a kind of an interesting sit. Um, the activity was not exactly what I had expected it to be, um, especially earlier in the morning there, um, but ended up having a really good sit. And it wasn't until about eight, 
40 or so. Um, I had four does uh, come flying, not flying, I guess they were kind of meandering, but they uh, worked from the opposite side of the little hollow that I hunt out of. Um, kind of from one ridge dip down through uh, that, you know, past the old apple trees and everything that I'd been sitting on earlier in the season. And then they came up um, on our, on my side and literally ended up taking the trail um, so through a bunch of really thick, nasty honeysuckle and ended up popping out like literally directly below me, um, like less than a yard. Like I'm pretty sure one of them probably like brushed the trunk of the tree that I was on. And oh, so, um, yeah, so it was, you know, I think it was two does and two yearling fawns. Um, but yeah, they made their way through and was able to grab my bow. They hit the little mock scrape that I had hanging there, um, which was kind of a relief to see that thing in action. Um, and then, yeah, they made their way on through. I got a, got a draw on them at about 25 yards. Um, they were all just kind of standing there, you know, none the wiser to my presence. Um, and uh, yeah, let one fly and, they all took off, not a single one of them blew. Um, and then I was kind of you know, watching them the direction they all went. And then, uh, you know, heard a crash, saw a couple of saplings sort of shake or whatever, which um, I'm kicking myself for not, you know, being a little bit more diligent on my blood tracking. I kind of relied on like, okay, I saw the saplings, you know, hmm. shake and heard the crash over yeah. there is right by this, you know, I can see this tree here. Um, and so rather than, you know, being a good blood tracker, um, I just kind of was like, all right, that's the tree it should be by. And I walked over and was like, wait a minute, where to go? And so then I had to circle back and retrack it. Um, just got a little ahead of myself, but got a full pass through. Um, a little high, a little back, but clipped back of both lungs, like right in front of the diaphragm. And um, yeah, she made it about 60 yards or so. And that was that. So Got some venison in the freezer now. She came back negative for CWD, and life is good. We're just waiting for the, uh, the pre-rut now. Waiting for the pre-rut, man. That's a good. That's a good spot to be in. Have you been? Have you been getting anything on camera as far as bucks that you're interested in, or has it been pretty quiet on the camera front? So I've got one target buck who was our target buck last year. Um, if you're, uh, I'll use this as a plug to tell folks, go follow the new at the Wisconsin Sportsman pod on Instagram, there you uh, go. new page over there. Um, there is a reel over there where you can see uh, our target buck from last year to this year. Um, and uh, yeah, he, he's kind of been out and about. We had all that rain last, you know, late last week. And uh, that seems to have shifted things a little bit with the, the deer behavior. We were just chatting that, you know, we're not quite sure what exactly the bucks are doing right now. Um, but myself and my neighbor um, across the road from us, who's had our target buck, you know, on camera and stuff like that, hitting a scrape. Um, both of our cameras kind of dried up and then he went down to Creek bottom, you know, about 300 yards from where those were, or those other cameras were. And uh, he was hanging out down there making a scrape and, you know, hitting that pretty regularly. So um, we'll see. Yeah, it's uh, I'm feeling good about him, hopefully making a pass over, to, you know, our ridge. And um, otherwise, you're kind of uh, nudging me to try and kill your buck over on uh, a certain patch of public that will remain nameless, which I'm still having some mixed feelings about, man. But well, but listen, but listen, <laughs> so like you're you're torn about it. And the deal was like, hey, 
if he daylights in October, like you really need to be, you really got to get after it because I'm not going to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we went back and looked at the pictures and realized he showed up October 20th last year. So we're like right there in that time frame. You're about to go hang some cameras over there. Yep. Right. And, and I got to know, like, I think you'd forgotten how big he was a little bit. I 110% had forgotten how big he was. <laughs> so, uh, what do you think, man? Is that, is that more tempting now that you realize he's, and he was a like three-year-old said, and he was a three-year-old. So I know, man, I don't know what kind of jump he's made this year. If he's still around, I know he was, I know he lived through gun season. I wonder what kind of jump he was, he's going to make do. Cause he had the frame to be a giant. Like I said, um, if I end up sneaking in there and filling my tag on that buck, I'm going to be buying your tags for the next three years. Um, <laughs> and you've also got full access to uh, any of the properties that I'm hunting on as well. So <laughs> not a bad trade, not a bad trade. I man. can't in good. I don't know, man. I still like the more we talk about it. I'm like, yeah, it's a hell of a deer. But at the same time, like, Oh, I don't know if I could do that to you. You're driving 14 hours, man. Like, but here's the deal. <laughs> if he's daylighting in October, which yeah, I didn't really get him in daylight last year, but we're, we're moving some cameras around. So I think there's a lot better chance we get him in daylight this year mm-hmm. um, in October. If he does, and I'm not there, like this is heavily pressured public. Like I've had other people on the show right. to talk about this spot who also hunt there. And they're like, Dude, that spot's really heavily pressured. Like it's no, uh, it, it, it deer out there are known and they're going to get shot, you know, good deer out there. And so it's you or somebody else. That's true. It's not going to be me I probably. I mean, if he's active, um, although the spot we were talking about, there's uh really no way that you're going to find it on Onyx or anything. Like it's not, mm-hmm. it, it's not obvious, but anyway. Can confirm. I was trying last <laughs> night, folks. It's, it is invisible on Onyx. <laughs> yeah, it is totally invisible, but totally makes sense when you, when mm-hmm. you're picking, when you're picking up on what's going on there. Um, but anyway, man, we'll see. We'll see. I, he is a, a good deer. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I've never chased anything that big. Even him as a three-year-old, I've never chased anything that big. Uh, he rivals the biggest deer I've ever seen on the hoof, like in a hunting scenario, which mm-hmm. as a three-year-old, so I think he's probably in that 155, 160 range um, to give people an idea. And I think this year, if he makes a big jump as a four-year, you know, from three to four, I mean, gosh, there's no telling. I don't know. Right. I don't know what he could turn. I, I'm afraid to even, <laughs> I'm afraid to even think about what he could turn into, um, but it could get stupid real fast. Um but dude, dude, he's one of those deer that's like, I, if I were to see it on the hoof, I think I would like, uh, it would be tough not to like throw up as I was drawing my bow. <laughs> like, like I had him in my sights, man. right? Like, I don't know what I would do. Right. And he's, the, he's the quality of deer that you're already thinking like, okay, what's the biggest deer ever shot in this County again? Like mm-hmm. how, how big, uh, now he's on public. So he will not, he won't live to be five or six. I don't think. Um, right. Yeah. When he could truly be, but he, I think he's got the potential. If he could live to five or six, I think he could be a, I think he could be a two hundred inch deer one day. Oh, easy. Um, yeah, he's got the genes for it. He's got the frame for it. That's for sure. Yeah. The dude is wide with some long tines, but 
Anyway, that's enough of that before people start trying to figure out where we're at. <laughs> um, some some folks already know, but um, anyway, man. Yeah, th- you know what? Too, we get those cameras in there. It, it is the type of scenario where if it's October twenty second and he daylighted, and then October twenty third he daylighted again. There's a chance I'm up there on October twenty fourth. Like, <laughs> you know, really? It, it, you think you'd be able to swing it? I, dude, I just bought my wife a trip to Banff. That's uh, true. So it's very true. There, you know, there are some there are some things that have been done here recently mm-hmm. um, where she may feel a little more gracious. Not to say that I've earned uh, a trip or anything, but just to say, you know, I've primed the pump. I've done everything I can. Um, <laughs> You know, for, You're doing for, all right. Yeah, doing doing everything I can for that scenario. So, uh, <laughs> Pierce, how are you feeling going into the season? Are you? Uh, I don't know. I mean, like we we've talked a little bit. This season just feels different going into it. And I don't know if it's just because like we're both crazy busy, and it's almost like I mean we're already halfway through October, so maybe it's just that you know the the pre rut's going to be. I mean, November is going to be here before we know it. Like. You're you're gonna be up here in two weeks. Yeah, it's and it's, that's it's coming super fast. Um, I've not sat in a tree at this point, so I'm I'm probably not going to. I have mm-hmm. been shooting, but honestly, I've put probably less work into this season than any of the previous seasons. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know how I feel about this season, man. Like I I don't know. I'm I'm strangely confident. Uh, yeah. usually it takes a lot to make me feel confident, but this year I feel very confident and feeling like I got a good chance of getting it done. And I have no reason to feel that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just about to ask, what, like, what, what is it that's factoring in to make you feel that way? Is it just everything's, you know, moving nicely with your, uh, with your shooting? Is it the, the fact that you don't have cameras in the field yet? And it's kind of just like, uh, you're at the mercy of, uh, you know, mother nature and your availability and stuff like that. Dude, it, it's just kind of like, Hey, whatever happens, happens. It could be the blind optimism of not having cameras out. Mm-hmm. Like that could be playing into it pretty huge, which would be yeah. really interesting. I might, ah, oof, that's a hard question to think through. Like, <laughs> like if that makes me enjoy this time of year right now, even more, like, should I be messing with cameras? Like, should that even be a thing for me? If, if I'm just happier and more, yeah, if I'm just happier and more confident right now because I don't have any cameras out, like, mm-hmm. uh, but yeah, man, I'm shooting well. I've never shot this well, this consistently. Um, I I don't know what that is all about because I haven't put in more time this year than mm-hmm. than normal. I don't know. Maybe I'm just a a little less jumpy. Um, but yeah, man, I don't know. Um, I do feel confident though. I think I think a lot of it is just understanding the nature of having 12 or more days to hunt during the rut. Like I just, you're going to get your shot mm-hmm. if you're putting yourself around deer areas. Like it's, right. it's going to happen. And I know my, my standards are still low. Like there, I'm, yeah, there may be a giant buck out there that I'm chasing, but like, dude, the first two year old hundred, 110 inch deer that walks by, like I'm slinging one at him, you know? So right. it's, uh, I'm, I'm at least going to scare him real bad. So, um, it's, I don't know, man. I don't know. Confidence is high and I just feel like, uh, I feel like I'm going to get my shot. What about you? How are you feeling? I mean, you've already got a doe on the ground. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm feeling pretty good. Um, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I'm, I'm shooting better than I have in a long time. 
I think that's a big part of it. Um, so I'm glad to, I'm really glad to hear that you're kind of in the same boat there. Right. Um, you know, I'm, it's a lot different than years past where I'm, I'm, I mean, this year in particular, I'm a heck of a lot busier than I was, um, you know, like when I was hunting in college and stuff like that, or, um, not that I wasn't busy in college, but it was busy in a different way. (laughs) Um, you you know, it's, it's, it's different this year where I'm kind of with you. I almost have, I don't want to say I have less ambition because I do. Um, but, you know, I was really, really just kind of engulfed in trout season this year. We had a really right. good wrap up to the year. And so that was, you know, taking a lot of my attention um, and just kind of hunting when I could. And that was, it's been really nice having that doe hunt come together the way that it did was really, really nice. Um, it was kind of weird. I, when I drew back on that doe and I let that arrow fly, um, you know how normally you kind of get shorter breath and you get shaky and you get nervous when you're like, Oh man, here's my shot. It's going to happen. Like, here we go. Like, and you, you almost start overthinking everything. Um, man, it didn't hit me that I had like sent an arrow through that doe and she was down and dead, um, for probably 10 minutes Jeez. after she was, after she hit the ground. Wow. And then I was like, Holy smokes. I, <laughs> just got a deer sweet. Like, this is awesome. And then I I don't know, it was just weird. Like I I wasn't overthinking my shot process at all. Um, it it felt really, really automatic and just everything went together. I felt good about the shot. I wasn't, you know, kind of panicky or anything like that about like, Oh man, she just, you know, took off into all that bedding. I'm going to blow this area out and all that stuff. Um, so, so I think having that come together the way that it did has me feeling really good going into the season. Yeah. Yeah. You know what? I, as you were talking there, something hit me. I have got a lot of confidence this year because, uh, last year when I went on my rut trip, I stayed flexible. I stayed mobile. I went where the sign told me to, I moved when the sightings told me to, and I just went with the flow of the hunt and just took what the deer were giving me. And I was successful. And I think mm-hmm. that that is playing into my mentality this year of like, no, I didn't do postseason scouting other than the day that I took my cameras down up there. So I did a little bit, but that was in November. That wasn't postseason scouting. Um, No, I didn't do preseason scouting up there. No, I didn't glass bean fields during the summer. No, I didn't, um, haven't put in, you know, a couple of sits in the early season already to start learning some things. No, I don't have cameras out. But last year, I did not shoot a deer where I had a camera, nor did I shoot a deer at a spot that I've hunted before. It's a brand new spot. Mm-hmm. I just moved. I just got mobile. Like I just went out there and kind of did it and adjusted to what the woods were giving me. And I think that has totally impacted me in a positive mm-hmm. way as a hunter. Now I may get out there this year and things don't go well. And I turn into a giant crybaby. and I swear off ever doing that kind of thing again. And only postseason scouting from now on. And you know, may never, may not even travel hunt anymore. I don't know. We'll see uh, how pouty I get about things. But for right now, I think that's playing into it. But uh, Pierce, we we're running long on this intro, man. Got to get into the uh, the heart of the episode. We had Mister Doug Duran on. Yes, it, we did. It's been a long time coming. It's a longer episode, guys. So just a warning. You may want to break this one up into two. I don't know exactly how long it is, but I know between this intro 
and the episode, I'm going to guess we're going to be somewhere in that two hour mark. What do you think? Yep. Absolutely. Be somewhere right in there, but it's worth hearing all two hours of it. Doug is a fascinating guy. Um, a just standout conservationist. He's a, he likes to hunt. Yeah. But like, it's not, it doesn't rule him, man. I, I, Mm -hmm. I found that really refreshing. Like he likes to deer hunt, but that, that doesn't rule him or define him. Um, conservationist defines him first. And that to me is just so intriguing. So, uh, enthralling, like just made him a super fascinating guy to talk to. I had to leave the conversation halfway through because I had to go get my kids. Things were running long, and I just texted Pierce. I'm like, Pierce, dude, keep going. I got to leave. And so uh, you guys had a wonderful conversation after I left. But um, mm-hmm. anyway, man, anything that we need to bring up real quick about Doug, about our sponsors, any of that good stuff before we let folks get into the episode? Um, You know, I, I think folks are going to get a really good sense of Doug's conservation philosophy in this episode. I think they're going to gain a further appreciation for – um, in, in particular, the small farming culture in the state of Wisconsin, um, right. especially right. multi-generational family-owned farms. Um, and just, you know, the, the, the things that they're facing, um, how difficult it is to really, you know, sustain something like that, um, again, in a sustainable way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I, I think folks are really going to gain a lot hearing about Doug's sharing the land initiative as well. Right. Um, just his, his efforts to connect, um, you know, private landowners with people who are seeking, um, you know, access for, you know, hunting and fishing and recreation, um, in a mutually beneficial way. And Doug doesn't, you know, he emphasizes it's not mutually beneficial just for both parties, but also the land as a whole, right, um, right. that the, the folks are going to be recreating on. So, there's a lot of awesome stuff in here. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with him. Um, I know you did as well. I think everybody's going to like listening to this. Um, but before that, uh, we do have a quick sponsorship um, ad read here uh, for Revo sunglasses. Uh, once again, you can get 30% off at Revo sunglasses uh, website, <laughs> Revo.com. Um, <laughs> Once again, these these guys are absolutely phenomenal to work with. Uh, they've got top of the line lenses, um, and you know a variety of styles. I love these things for fishing. I wore them all season guiding this year, and I am absolutely in love with them. They're lightweight, they're durable. Uh, the polarization is absolutely top notch, and I've put them up against you know any of the other top brands out there. Um, they've got great you know frames and glasses for you know fishing you know outdoor recreation as well as just you know hanging out on the patio drinking beer and stuff like that so uh go check them out at revo.com and use code wisconsin sportsman 30 for 30 percent off your order awesome well pierce man thanks for uh jumping on the intro with me let's get folks right into the episode get ready to share your hunt this season with the tacticam 6.0 point of view camera Featuring a built-in one-inch LCD touchscreen, one-touch operation, weatherproof housing, and mounts to fit any style of hunting, the Tacticam 6.0 is sure to simplify the self-filming process for you and make sure you have high-quality footage to share with family and friends. The 6.0 features up to 8x zoom, new image stabilization technology that takes the shock out of the shot and lets you capture crystal clear 4K 60 frame per second footage. Now through September 21st, 
you can get a 6.0 camera, a stabilizer mount, a clamp mount, and a bottle of scrape fix for just $355.99. To learn more or pick up your 6.0 today, head over to Tacticam.com. If you want to create more memories and fill your freezer while you're doing it, the Onyx Hunt app is a must-have tool in your arsenal. With major new aerial imagery updates with historic look back, high-frequency imagery, and even the ability to order your own custom imagery, the Onyx Hunt app has solidified itself as the leader among mapping systems. Now, this is all on top of the public and private land ownership info, the ability to use this app with no service, and the unmatched reliability that you have come to expect out of the Onyx Hunt app. You can try the Onyx Hunt app for free for seven days. Just go find them on the app store of your choice, or you can go to onyxmaps.com to learn more. The archery opener is right around the corner, and you can hunt in comfort this season with camo from Huntworth. They make high-quality technical camo at a fraction of the price of other brands. My personal favorites for the early season include the Durham lightweight pants, which are rugged and durable, but also lightweight and breathable with just the right amount of stretch where it counts, and the Gadsden quarter zip hoodie, which is made to be breathable and moisture wicking. To make building out your kit simpler, the Huntworth website now features their new system builder. This tool will help you grab the right camo no matter what season or species you're hunting. To check out their full camo line, head over to HuntworthGear.com. Now let's get into this week's show. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Wisconsin Sportsman Podcast. I've got my co-host, Mr. Pierce Nellis, on the line, and our very honored guest, or we are very honored to have as our guest today, Mr. Doug Duran. Doug, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for making the time for this. We really, really appreciate it. Pierce, how are you doing? I'm doing well, man. <laughs> I'm looking forward to tomorrow's cold front. Yeah, it's coming. It's coming. It it's yeah. gonna hit us down here in the south as well. So I'm I'm pretty excited about that. Saturday and Sunday are really gonna cool off for us. Mm-hmm. So when you yeah, say I don't quite have a property lined up that's got a a good spot for tomorrow's wind, but uh still still figuring that one out. We'll get to that. That's all right. There's a lot of places in Iowa to hunt. There you yeah, go. You right. <laughs> hey, just go run around, find somewhere. Go up there, go up and hang out on the edge of that park up there at McGregor, up, uh, McGregor yeah. up by Pike's Peak. I know, right, guy, yeah. I know a guy who killed a bunch of big old bucks up there. He, mm-hmm. he used to own land right next to it. And I was like, how are you killing all these deer on this little tiny property? He goes, see that line over there? <laughs> I'm like, oh, I get it. You'll stand right next to it. Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, hey, we've got Doug Duran on the line, like I said, and I'm really excited for this conversation. This is one of those that I feel like has been a long time coming. Uh, so I'm going to hand the reins over to Pierce, though. He's got some some questions to kind of tee things up there uh, here at the beginning. So, Pierce, why don't you take the reins from here and uh, introduce Doug if if somebody's been living under a rock and hasn't heard of him. I don't I don't know. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't, I don't think Doug needs needs too much of an introduction here because I, I mean he's, he's kind of uh, spoken for for himself at this point in the industry um but but yeah doug why don't you uh um just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh you know where you're located and kind of what you do and eventually we'll work out we were talking before how you're good friends with uh, a guy by the last name Renella, um who i think a lot of folks have heard of and we were kind of shooting the breeze about how you got connected with him and all that but yeah yeah uh, matt matt and i have been friends for quite a while (laughs) definitely Um, the more popular of those brothers yeah (laughs) (laughs) um and and brother danny too um well, geez, man, I, I thought this was the quiz part where you're going. Well, I was going to find out how much you already knew about me, that, that rather than me talking about myself. <laughs> um, but I, I'll, I'll tell you this: 
I'll tell you this about myself. I live in um, southwest Wisconsin, uh, Richland County. It's in the Driftless area. Our place is up here in northeastern Richland County. Um, I grew up here, moved away 40-plus years ago, and if you'd have told me then that I would move back, I would have laughed in your face, but um, moved back uh, at least relatively close about 25 years ago, I guess, to Madison, and then um, that's when I really started taking over the the management of our family property here in in, uh, Richland County. Um, And uh, I'm really... Really uh, fortunate to be in, I was going to say glad, but um, there's a lot of tragedy in how I ended up here too. But I feel real fortunate to be the steward of this property for this generation. Um, That me being the uh, fourth generation or my brothers and sisters and I, I should say, being the fourth generation to uh, own and and take care of this place previously – um, like when my great grandparents bought the place, they bought it because there was timber on it and they had a sawmill about a mile from here where the original family property is. It's been in the family since the 1860s. Um, so they bought this property because it had a bunch of timber on it and it still does, quite honestly. I mean, it's 430 acres and uh, 200 and almost 260 of it's still uh, wooded. Um, and uh, after it was a, as I said, they bought it for the, the timber. They carved a farm out of it, and then a, so it was a sort of the quintessential Wisconsin dairy farm um, during much of the 20th century until the late 80s, when um, my dad and brother, my bro- my older brother, was the last one to milk cows here, and then uh, after that he left the area, and my dad just uh, ran some beef cattle. And that's what I continue to do with it. So it really went from being a, a working, you know, a, a timber producing then working farm to now more of a conservation property. And just really fortunate that there was good planning and thoughtfulness in the previous generation that my brothers and sisters and I ended up with this um, uh, property um, that shall remain in our family forever, as far as I'm concerned. And that's kind of how we're setting it up. So, um, awesome. and that's kind of what, you know, where most of what I'm known in the space that, that we're talking about here, that's most of where, why I'm known is because of things that have happened here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, four generations of farming there, man, that is, that, it's tough to come by these days. And, you know, I, I think the more rural you get, maybe the more, um, the more you're seeing some of those, uh, you know, multi-generational farms, but it seems like these days with just the the cost of farming and just how difficult it's getting with regulations and other, you know, larger, larger farming operations, it's it's getting few and far between that you find those multi-generational farms. You might be interested in this uh, little tidbit about our county. Mm-hmm. When I was 12 years old, so I'm going to be 65 in January. When I was 12 years old, I remember the first person from away, as we call them, who bought land mm-hmm. in this area. And uh, now 65% of our county is owned by people who don't live here on a full-time basis. No kidding, really. Yeah. That, I mean, that's kind of a startling statistic, isn't it? And and um, and that's not all bad. You know, I'm, I tend to be someone who realized a while ago that 
the only constant is change, right? So things mm-hmm. change. And so a lot of these smaller farm, the, you know, small sustainable farms like, like ours, um, you know, that were dairy farms back in the day. Well, uh, Earl Butts, I'm sure you guys remember Earl Butts from the seventies. He was, <laughs> he was the secretary <laughs> of the department of agriculture and he announced uh, to either get big or get out. And that's kind of what happened. There are still as many cows in Richland County as there were in the 70s and 80s, dairy cows. I mean, in those days, they were on several hundred farms. Now there's a half a dozen farms they're all on. So that's one of the big changes. Yeah, that they're big, big, these big dairies versus, you know, the the quintessential Wisconsin dairy farm sort of dotted Mm -hmm. on the landscape. I mean, you're from around here. You you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, 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 the America's Dairyland, the thing that we're sort of known for, um, you know, has changed and farming has changed and all that. And it just it is what it is. And then, um, I mean, some of it was just the way farming went and, and the way the uh, not even the regulation so much as the the way like the price supports and all of that went that, I mean, most of the farming around here now is like corn and beans. It's commodity farming. And it's, it's to me, it's silly because mm-hmm. we're commodity farming in an area that's meant, you know, it's most of the, the, the fields are on side Hills and we are trying to compete with, you know, those big old farms in Iowa and Illinois and, you know, in, the, in more in the great plains. And it just doesn't, it, it doesn't, doesn't make sense to me, but um, there's a lot of things in the world that don't make sense to me. So I guess that's <laughs> not that, uh, that's not that unusual, but um, but what happened with a lot of those properties is, uh, as they were bought by other people, maybe other farmers, or you know they were mm-hmm. absorbed into another farm. All of a sudden, you've got the little homestead and ten acres or forty acres or something like that that was available. And for a long time, those were like it's a really difficult thing to get rid of, you know, or or they, they were available. Now, Mm. um, probably the most desirable properties in this area are farmsteads that have a bit of acreage with them Mm -hmm. and that have some of the charm and all that. And that's what people from away kind of like. Right. Um, And then they are folks who have the wherewithal to come in and do good conservation work. I mean, Josh was talking, he and I were just talking about how we're both, we do land management work. Well, I can tell you, um, about, I could tell you about, you know, several different properties that were bought by people as their recreation property or their, or their, that they just wanted a piece of property out here in the, in the Driftless area. And um, they've put significant funds and work into it and hired guys like me and the people that work for me to do that work. And it's really good for conservation and habitat. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you had to squeeze every nickel you could out of that land to pay for it, that's a whole different kind of thing. And I remember a lot of rundown farms when I was a kid, you know? And so, oh, yeah. I mean, it's sort of that, it's not all or one or the other, you know, it's the balance in it all that, that I find interesting. And I, even though I'm, an, I'm often accused of being an old curmudgeon, um, I tend to try to be pretty optimistic and, and find the good things in, in all of that. And, um, and I think there is a lot of good and the area is changing, you know, we're kind of going from that. We're kind of going from that 
small agricultural thing. It's taken time, but you know, when you think about it in the relative scheme of things, 30 years isn't that long of a period of time. So our economy is changing here more towards that recreational and tourism and um, along with agriculture always being a part of it. So, you know, that's definitely just the way things go. Do you think any farmers or or many farmers are starting to kind of make that realization you mentioned that our, our landscape's a little bit more suited for at least in the driftless region it's it's suited better for pasturing cattle um or whatever livestock you've got around there more so than trying to plant on it and you know growing up i, I didn't really think a whole lot of it because you know you see you see the farm you see the cows you see the cornfield in the background and you think oh well it all just works they do they do it all together and uh they, they just make it happen but um yeah, that's an interesting point. I think that's something that a lot of folks don't often think about when they're looking at a landscape and how the land is being used. Um, do you think that that transitions kind of that realization is being made? Well, so this is an interesting. That's a big. That's a big discussion. But let me let me mm-hmm. put it this way: um, I've done some work with pheasants forever, and and some of their. Uh, done some talks and I will be at pheasant fest again this year for those of you who are in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Um, And last year I was part of a group that spoke to landowners and operators, which are not necessarily the same thing. I thought, Oh, the landowners are like those absentee owners. Mm. Well, and some of them were, but land that had been in the family for generations. And I was like, "Mm, I'm kind of that guy, you know, once I realized what was, was going on, but, uh, they in their their uh in that one part of that discussion there was this whole this whole focus on red acres versus green acres and um green acres being the highly most highly productive land and red acres being that marginal land and it's a real um i mean why put the same amount of inputs into land that's marginal to get less of a yield especially if you get the opportunity to put that into some kind of conservation program where you can make a certain amount of, um, you know, a, a percentage of that money continue to, to and, and then increase the habitat and then not put those inputs into that. And suddenly bottom line goes up, mm-hmm. you know, maybe you aren't farming as many acres. And I know that, and there's probably people out there rolling their eyes and saying stuff like, well, yeah, but they're getting crop insurance and stuff on those marginal acres. Yeah. Well, let's get away from that. Right. Let's farm the land that's most suitable for that, for farming. And on that marginal, those red acres, let's put that into conservation. And, and, you know, Leopold, Elder Leopold once said that conservation will ultimately come down to rewarding the private landowner for preserving the public's resources. And um, that's where a lot of these programs have come from, right? Born from that idea. So I think that that's just an extension of that. I mean, I think about our farm here that all of our croplands in CRP and I've got a contract that's coming up and I'm thinking about putting some of it back into production because it's really good farmland for this area um it depends on how i can split it up but it's like what's what when you talk about land use it's like what's the best use and best is a relative term too but you know if you if you think about this kind of stuff philosophically 
first, which is kind of where I've gotten in my life and stole most of these ideas. That that idea is that if we have a land ethic that we can hold these things up against, then it makes it a little easier to make those decisions, right? I think that mm-hmm. the paths become pretty clear. So, um, you know, it's not ours. It's just our turn is my mantra. And um, from a conservation standpoint, and that's kind of what we use is like, it's kind of, you know, best practices stuff. So, anyway. right. Right. Absolutely. So our people, I, I'm sorry, I didn't answer your question. <laughs> that's just as good of an answer i was <laughs> no, it was, that was an answer in search of a question um just want to take a quick minute to let you know that the wisconsin sportsman podcast is brought to you by tacticam makers of the best point of view cameras on the market for hunters and anglers they're on the cutting edge making user-friendly cameras to help the everyday outdoorsman share your hunt with friends and loved ones Their new 6.0 camera has a ton of upgraded features this year, but the one I'm most excited about is the new LCD touchscreen. In my mind, that is a total game changer. And one area Tacticam really shines is with their mounts and adapters that are made with the sportsman in mind. If you've tried to film your hunting and fishing excursions, you know just how frustrating it can be to try to get an action camera aimed just right or get it attached to your weapon or in a good spot for a second angle. Well, Tacticam makes all of that a breeze with their line of mounts and adapters. This fall, I'm going to be using their stabilizer mount on my bow with the 6.0 camera and their bendy clamp paired with the 5.0 wide camera for a second angle and to make sure I don't miss any of the action. To learn more and check out their full line of products, head over to their website, Tacticam.com, and share your hunt with Tacticam. Yes, is the answer. People are beginning to recognize that, Mm -hmm. right? That land use is important and encouraging good land use. And what's interesting, this is just a side note, but I can remember when I was a kid, like if you were doing stupid things, people might say something to you about it. Like, why are you out there mowboard plowing in the fall when it's going to erode all winter? And, you know, or why, why did you take your contour strips out? Or why are, you know, I mean, people would ask you about people, those questions were, were had. I mean, they were those things, things discussed. And then we got away from that kind of, I mean, you still see some of it around here, especially with commodity farming, they're planting from stem to stern in places where they can, right? Mm-hmm. But you see a lot more good conservation practices happening. And I mean, we're seeing an increase in the, um, the the quality of the trout streams in our area and a lot of this is because of better management practices that are encouraged you know i think it goes along with there's like leopold said that the whole thing about rewarding well that's financial right but the other part of it is i mean he was disappointed eventually because as soon as as soon as the uh in some cases financial incentives went away people went back to the same old practices Mm -hmm. so that's where his land ethic kind of came from right and uh, if you read uh, Sam County Almanac, you can kind of see him. He talks about going through this, uh, going through this metamorphosis. And um, mm-hmm. so if you think about it in those, you know, what he thought about in those terms was, well, both of those things go together, right? I mean, it's a hell of a lot easier for me to do, to uh, not have this highly erodible land in, in crops if there's an alternative to doing that a financial alternative, because at the end of the day, even though this place doesn't have to pay for itself, it does have to be financially viable. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes the, that becomes the, in my case, at least. And I think in a lot of land 
owners cases is I just need this land to be financially viable, not to, you know, to squeeze every nickel out of it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, man, you struck a chord with me there talking about the trout streams. Cause I've definitely noticed, um, you know, a, a change over the past couple of years in, you know, really, I mean, part of it's been, I mean, it was just hotter than heck this year and it's just been a miserable summer for trout. But um, I've talked to a lot of folks who have been seeing fewer and fewer bugs in those areas and in those trout streams that are downhill from, you know, stuff that's more often, or I guess that's more so surrounded by, um, you know, cropland and all that. And a lot of discussion about it is that's been, it's, you know, more of its murmurs than anything, but a lot of it's, you well, know, I don't know. I say it out loud, man, you know, you can't kill, you can't kill, you, you can't use insecticide in indiscriminate insecticides and expect there to be bugs around, you know, right. that's, I mean, I, I, I'll have those discussions, you know, anytime Love that it. I can, I mean, there's mm-hmm. a balance in all of that. Right. Right. And how do we, so how do we mitigate that becomes a question. There's a lot of smart people out there working on this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there's, and I mean, I don't know much. I'm, one thing I do know, though, is how to find out who knows about a particular yep. subject. And I, if you don't learn anything else from me today, folks, that's the thing is like pay attention to the people who and seek out the people who um, are experts in particular fields and, you know, and take what they have to say and put that in, you know, not not just take it verbatim, right? Um, my my buddy Ranella, who you were talking about before, Steve, not uh, has said on many occasions that um, skepticism is the chastity of the intellect. Well, I'd like to think that I'm at least semi-thoughtful. I wouldn't call myself an intellectual, but, um, and, you know, so it's good. Healthy skepticism is a good thing. Well, okay, explain this to me, and then you can kind of understand. And then, of course, a lot of just common sense and logic comes into this whole thing, too. I mean, if the water's muddy, it's probably not that great. You know, it's fairly right. easy to figure stuff like that out. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. No, Doug, absolutely. Doug, just a follow up to that. Mm-hmm. You know, um, you've, you've got people who follow you and your work and who are interested in conservation and, and learning more of what they can do to not only uh, be more informed, but possibly even take this kind of stuff to the field and, and have some hands on experience. Where would you point people who are looking for? the people that know something, you know what I mean? Like who are people in your space that you would recommend that others be paying attention to or following along with so that they can be more informed to make better choices? Well, I can speak generally and I can speak specifically to that. Right. So generally I will say that um, I have great respect for the natural resource conservation service. Um, That's a a federal agency um, full of, ecologists, biologists, engineers, you know, all of that. Um, And the battle that those folks have sometimes is the regulations that they are then uh, um, working with, I was going to say enforcing, but the the work that they are working with and the way bills are, that's not, they aren't the ones writing the bills. Right. You know, you have politicians who are writing the bills. And, um, and so if you get frustrated with working with a government agency, um, I can tell you that usually it's not the person that you're working with is the problem. It's usually the, the way the legislation was written and you can kind of go back to the politicians and then the, 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 the interests that are lobbying them. But I work, um, fairly regularly with the natural resource conservation service here in our, um, colony. We have a farm bill biologist that's paid for partially by the, um, 
by pheasants forever quail forever um one of my that's actually my favorite um next to the leopold foundation i guess i would put those two aside the elder leopold foundation and the and the uh and pheasants forever quail forever my two favorite um ngos because they're not only involved with policy and and thinking and all of that but they're also do a lot of on the ground kind of stuff so um you'll see if you join pheasants forever you will see uh um field days where they're working on a project or a property or something like that um and it's not about pheasants you know it's about habitat it's about wildlife habitat pheasants forever is i don't i don't want to say i don't care about pheasants because i do but um but I care much more about wildlife habitat, not just game species habitat, right? And that's what they, I mean, I, I do a work with them on pollinator habitat. Well, I didn't do with pheasants, right? Except for it kind of does because there's some real similarities in the kind of grasses and forbs that you're growing for pollinators that also favor upland game birds. Um, so the Elder Leopold Foundation, near and dear to my heart over here, and you can go online and find their stuff, right? And they're always offering um, classes online. Online, they have they they used to do. And they're not doing as many sort of hands-on classes and that sort of uh, thing as as they used to. But you know, everybody kind of got tripped up there by COVID and all, and so some of it's you know sort of rethinking that during that period. More stuff online, which hits a bigger, can hit a bigger audience right. too. Um, I was a part of a program there called my Wisconsin woods. And uh, uh, there's a, a, a little book that they, they published called my healthy woods and it's specific Pierce. You should be interested in this. And if you've never seen it, um, I have to remember to send you one or get one to you somehow. It's called My Healthy Woods, and it's specifically about Southwest Wisconsin and the Driftless area, and mm. and you know, sort of, it's a really good um, primer. Primer. Um, I never know which one of those words. It's like niche and niche, niche or primer or primer. I did the same thing. <laughs> I was like, eh, you know, it's a thing that like that, you know, and I always feel like an idiot no matter how I say it. So I end up having these making these comments, but it's a really good primer for anyone who's interested in Southwest Wisconsin's woodlands. And um, it's called my Wisconsin woods on the Leopold uh, website. There's also a publication available on the Leopold website. And in fact, I just, I'm giving one away. Uh, I just did a quiz online and uh, someone won it um, called why hunt and it's the same kind of publication that really is, if you're someone who's interested in hunting um, and you're like, well, where do I start with this? This little book could be a great place to start. Um, I give them away at events, been so generous with me with them. And, um, but uh, wonderful, those, those kinds of small publications are fantastic. There's a bunch of stuff online. So, um, so those tend to be the conservation stuff. I'm forgetting, you know, some things. Oh, like you, every uni, every state kind of east of Appalachia, the Appalachian Mountains, has land-grant colleges, right? University, And here we have the University of Wisconsin system. 
Um, I'm sure they have it in Georgia too. I know Iowa's got it. There's always an extension. And the extension has something to do with, you know, agriculture or whatever. And they are always offering classes. Those are great opportunities to go. And you don't have to go. This is the this is the the way it's got to be. I mean, you go there and kind of pay attention and listen um, and learn some things. I really think that those are, are really good opportunities as well. Um, Wisconsin has a Department of Natural Resources, um, as most states do, but we have a really robust forestry department. It's the private land forestry department is real good. And they also offer, um, and usually are a part of these field days and those sort of things. You know, before I um, started this initiative, sharing the land, which we can talk about in a little bit, how I, you know, mm-hmm. trying to get landowners and access seekers together in, in conservation, cooperatively in, co- in conservation. I get a lot of questions. I still do. Like, how do you, with landowners and um uh i would still i would still suggest this one way is to go is to is to get dialed into these things there's a woodland owners association here in wisconsin it's called the wisconsin woodland owners association in the wisconsin you heard that in my nose didn't you um <laughs> every state has that kind of thing i know it's, it's, i can't you can't stop the accent pierce it's just the way it is um but uh, don't worry, Wisconsin um, or Stoughton. But um, anyway, uh, was I talking about, fellas? Wisconsin I've never. I've ne- people keep asking me, <laughs> "When are you going to have your own podcast?" And I was like, "I don't know if I'll ever do that." But I do know what the title of it would be. It's like, what was I talking about? That would be the, the what, what, what was I talking about podcast with Doug Duran? That's a good one. Um, I like that. Yeah. Well. Okay. Copywriting that right now. Um, <laughs> Uh, I'm looking for a producer. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, th- those kinds of signing up for those kinds of days, Wisconsin Woodland Owners Association, um, uh, Wild Turkey Federation, anybody who's having a field day, and you can get on their their email, uh, their on their email lists, and they'll tell you when they're having a field day. And like the Woodland Owners Association is pretty much just land. I used to tell people, I still do, but you go to those field days and you're going to find out a couple of things. There's going to be a bunch of landowners there. Mm-hmm. And you're also mm-hmm. going to, I, I remember thinking 25 years ago when I started going to the more, more frequently around here, it's like, wow, landowners are old. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and now I go to those things and it's kind of like, wow, landowners are not that old anymore. Oh, wait a minute. Maybe it's just me that's gotten older. Mm. But um, they're there to learn about. And one of the most common questions, like, you know, timber stand improvement, invasive species control, habitat improvement, you know, prairie planting, uh, man, you name it, you know, stream bank restoration, all that kind of stuff. And landowner, you will hear landowners go, wow, this is a really good idea. I wonder how, how do I get this done? And there might be some contractors there. So, well, this is kind of work we do. And, you know, they sponsored it. So they get the, but that's when, if you're a 25 to whatever old person who doesn't have a place to hunt, but there you're there learning it. That's when you get to step forward and go, you know, I came here to learn about timber stand improvement or invasive species control. And I, this is really interesting to me. I'd love to have the opportunity to do it on a piece of property. So that's when, and so now you got a landowner who's there looking for a specific thing, you know, looking there, they're learning mm-hmm. something and they're looking for a way to get it done. And then 
that's a pretty easy introduction. Somebody knocks on my door, sends me a letter, sends me an email, sends me a text message, all that kind of stuff. I, I, I've got a list of 150, 160 people like from that kind of thing. Right. And every once in a while, one of them kind of moves up the ladder, you know, this whole sharing land thing that I started, I mean, but wants to, a lot of people want to, well, you know, is there availability on your farm? I'm like, well, no, I mean, I, you know, I've got, a long list of folks, but that's a part of what motivated me to do this. So how do you get people, how do you get those, how do you get landowners thinking about why would I have other people come onto my property hmm. and what kind of right. people do I want? And then what can they, you know, how can this be a mutually beneficial situation? When I say mutually beneficial, I don't mean just for the landowner and the access seeker. I mean the landowner, the access seeker and the land. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I think the focus in all of this is the land. Um, uh, you know, I have the benefit of sitting here on a piece of property has been in my family for so long that um, it was a, it, it wasn't, I mean, it was an epiphany really where I said, it's not ours, it's just our turn. Um, but I, that's the way I think about this. This is like, if I died, you know, talking to you guys, please still be here and somebody have to take care of it. Mm -hmm. Um so, I don't know. I guess that's the end of end of. Uh, we can talk about that kind of stuff forever, you know. Right. No. No. That was great. I, you know, you, you, that was a perfect segue there. I, I my next thing on the list was talking about the sharing the land initiative. How, how did you get started in that, and kind of how did that sort of come to be? Um, I mean, you mentioned there that it's connecting uh landowners and people looking for for hunting permission stuff like that uh in a, in a mutually beneficial way but how did what's kind of the background on that and what got you started in that well um 20 plus years ago um there was a this is a long story man but um <laughs> I don't, I, i'm sorry i don't have a Short ones, although I did hear a really funny joke today, and it's really short, and I'll just lay it on you real quick. I got a question for all you mind readers out there. Anyway, um, <laughs> that was good. That was good. I see what you did there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a good one. <laughs> anyway, my brother sent me that. I laughed out loud, man. I laughed out loud. Cause usually he sends me those groaner jokes, you know, or those dad jokes or whatever. And I was like, I, mm -hmm. that, that's funny. <laughs> and the groaner jokes are too. Um, this is the, what was I talking about podcast or what was I podcast? Um, how did I get started with this? So one of the things I learned, almost the first thing that I learned in hunting is when my dad used to go up North um, deer hunting, and they did that with his World War II buddies and stuff. And the, they did that in the, I mean, I was born in 1959. So he'd started doing it in the mid fifties, I guess. And was still doing it in the sixties when I was getting to the point where I could hunt. Anyway, um, I just remember this like it was yesterday. We had this old book, it was called The Deer Hunter's Bible. And it was like, uh, it came in a series of like three or four books that were in a little cardboard thing. And they were these cool little books. And, you know, black and white pictures, and they were just dog-eared because my brothers and I read those all the time, you know, looked at them all the time. And it was like, I mean, other than listening to my dad talk about hunting, that was like the, that was hunting media in those days, right? Mm -hmm. And um, 
But when my dad came back, it was like an early memory of him coming back from hunting up north and he had gotten a, a buck and, and, uh, I, I said, wow, well, you know, I was kind of like admiring both the deer and him as a hunter. Right. Well, that's really great that, that you got that buck. And he goes, let me tell you something. When you're hunting, you're also hunting for the other guy. And I didn't, under, so then he explained while they were going up north, these big swamps and stuff. And they, you know, they were almost everything was deer drives. They bare, hardly ever did any, but they always did it as a group, right? So it was a shared experience. And when they came back and they butchered their deer and stuff together, it was, everybody got the same amount of meat. Um, it wasn't an individual thing or a competitive thing. Sure, those guys gave each other a lot of grief if you missed or whatever, but very congratulatory if you got the buck too. But, um, that that idea, right? So that it's a it's a group thing. I've always enjoyed hunting with groups of people. Almost every activity that I've done, I've always kind of enjoyed it as a group as much as anything. Um, so going way back to then, that was the first time I can remember that. And then when I was a kid, you know, around here, you didn't have to ask permission to go anywhere. You just went. I mean, it was just the way it was, you know. And um, and then I remember this guy from away. His name was Hans Morsbach, and he's passed now. He wasn't a bad guy or anything, but he bought this land. He was from Milwaukee, and he put up no trespassing signs around it. And we're like, what the hell is that, you know? Mm. Um, and that's a beautiful property. It was a rundown. It was one of those rundown farms that I was talking about, mm. right? So, uh beautifully restored now 52 years later his family I, in fact I've, I've talked on several occasions recently um i may end up helping them out with some of the management on it and it may end up being the sharing of land property wow um boy if it is it would really be a i hope i hope it works <laughs> out because it would a story that would be to tie something right. from over 50 years ago to this is going on now because right? they i mean the family hans is gone and he's like we need help up here wow. and these guys mm -hmm. who are hunting here are supposed to do this stuff and they're not and i'm like well sure because they're your dad's age and his dad passed in his mid-70s these guys are old man i tell you i'm in my mid-60s and i can't get her done like i used to um so those guys aren't getting that stuff done. So there's value in that, right? Access has value. I mean, you think about all this. There's all this work that needs to be done. It used to be like helping out on the farm, building fence, baling hay, hauling shit, whatever. And, um, you know, shoveling shit. And um, that is not nearly as needed anymore as the work and the, um, and, and, you know, other little projects and, and that sort of thing. So, that kind of exchange, you know, can happen. So it's really just the same old idea. I'll do something for you if if you do something for me and, you know, bringing that idea forward. And so what we've really done with sharing the land is formalize that arrangement. As you probably imagine, uh, Kenyon just mentioned it on his podcast. So all of a sudden, uh, the last two days, I've gotten 25 more access seekers, mm -hmm. which is great. The problem is... We, you know, we're, we've got 30 properties around the country, but I've got over 300 access seekers. So, you know, we, the su supply isn't as big as the demand. Somebody help me with the economics of that. But yeah, um, 
so that's an issue that we have. So if you're a access seeker and you are listening to this and you've heard about this and you're conservation resume and there's this whole thing understand that that's the rub that we have is that we're um that we just don't have the number of properties we have way more access seekers than we do properties to put them on and then matching Did you just say conservation resume oh yeah i'm sorry so um if you're a, if you're an access seeker you'll go on to that website think about that you know mm-hmm. what i just said right yeah so yeah. go on to the website and there's this thing called a conservation resume and it's a fillable form you click on it and you fill it out and there's some bugs with it you can only really do it once and then you'd have to do it again if you wanted to update it or something like that mm-hmm. but um once we get the funding we'll we'll build that thing um so that you can go back in and change it and all of that. But the idea is that an access seeker is filling out a resume about who they are, what they're interested in, what their skills are, what their abilities are, but but you gotta be straight about it too. You don't need to, mm-hmm. and here's the cool thing. We have landowners who are like, well, I, I'm, I'm most interested in inexperienced hunters or people who I can, who, you know, part of it is a learning process too. Yeah. Um, and they, they want that. And I, I, sometimes I think, especially with one landowner I'm thinking of right now, he's not a real experienced landowner. So I, I think he's a little concerned that if he got, uh, he and his wife got um, people who were like real experienced in conservation, they'd feel like they were um, like they didn't, they wouldn't make them comfortable. Right. So, you know, they've got a plan. They have a few things they want to do. They want to start in this. They are kind of new to land ownership and they're, he's, they're both new to hunting or newer to hunting. Here comes another one just came up on my, my screen here, another conservation resident. <laughs> um, and so that they were interested in less experienced people. Um, I have some landowners who are uh, yeah, a guy who's got chainsaw certified. He's, um, He's a burn boss from prescribed burns. This one, they're like, yeah, he's for us, you know, and he was matched <laughs> up really. He lives 10 miles from him. I mean, it's like the mouse. Oh, yeah. So some of that kind of serendipitous stuff happens. Um, but so this is really in that conservation resume. That's what they're doing. On the other side, the landowners fill out a land management or a, I'm sorry, a, a land uh, profile, cooperating land profile. And that comes to us. These both come to us, and then we do the do the matching. Eventually, once we build a big enough website, there, a lot of that stuff will just they'll you'll get the opportunity to um, you know kind of pitch yourself to the landowners and you know say, oh, there's a land, there's a piece of land in Marathon County, Wisconsin, and I'll that's where I want to hunt, or that's where I'd like mm-hmm. to access, or that's where I am. I'll I'll send it to that, and we protect the. Uh, excuse me, we protect the um, uh, identity of both sides as long as we can until they get to a point they're like, yeah, okay, I'll talk to that guy. So it's been a thing, but it's just sort of taking this old idea and we stole the whole idea from Eldo Leopold again. Um, <laughs> and this thing that he did down in uh, Deer Verona, Wisconsin called the Riley Game Cooperative, where he kind of stumbled across this yeah. farmer who was looking for, uh, uh, who was cleaning milk cans as a matter of fact and leopold strikes up a con them and you know i was going to ask him if he could hunt there and then the guy said well yeah you can but we don't really have much game here and leopold looking around kind of said well you know i don't know much of my habitat either and um they ended up coming up with this idea of the riley game cooperative and um really interesting story and that's that 
is actually on our website. And it's like, I thought I knew everything about Aldo Leopold. And then I, 15 years ago, same year that I met Steve, I, I stumbled across it, um, the little kiosk down there on a bicycle ride. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm like, wow, this is pretty incredible. And uh, since then, if you go on our website, on the Sharing Land website, and I think it's on mine as well, there's a link to a video that was uh, sponsored in uh, by Savage, uh, the gun company, and uh, shot by Joe Dickey, who's an amazing uh, videographer. Um, and he cut it and put it all together. And we had uh, we worked with the Leopold and, and a couple of people there putting this thing together, and it tells the story in a very uh, – quick way and also talks about how Leopold after he quit his job with the forest service in the 1930s, how um, Savage was one of the companies that sponsored him developing the um, game survey of the upper Midwest. It just, I mean, really? so many things to, Oh wow. yeah. 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 I mean, it's, I'm an old history teacher. Can you tell? <laughs> um, well, like all, all that stuff kind of ties together is just fascinating to me, you know? Yeah. But that's available on our website. If you just want to go there and watch that stuff. Um, I'm so thankful for, you know, uh, having a sponsor like Savage and Onyx for that matter. We're starting to shoot a series of stuff with Onyx right now. um, That's telling these stories because that's really what it is. Right. I mean, I've had a lot of people reach out to me and say, well, I'm doing something just like this on our place. I was like, cool. Can we tell your story? You know, that they've got guys that come out and help them with something. I said, yeah, yeah. They actually reach out to me and ask about some of the concerns and particulars, like, what about liability if they're doing work for you? And what about, mm-hmm. ins- you know, I mean, should they be insured? And how do we cover this and all of that? And we've worked through a lot of that. I mean, nothing is airtight, but there's, there's in our frequently asked questions, there's some um, parts of that, that that explain that. And then, you know, there's insurance can get and and then signing an agreement with somebody is really important too so Mm -hmm. um it's been a really interesting process and uh and sharing the land is uh well we're in our second year now but we have uh 30 properties and um getting a lot of people out and about and we're starting to tell some of those stories uh we just filmed a uh first part of a of a of a video down in iowa at hoxie on there who's one of our who turns out to be one of our now is one of our sponsors but they were looking to sign up for sharing the land and i went down there with a group of people i mean the other people did most of the work because you know doing other stuff but um and we helped them with improving their it's a seed company native seed company Hmm. and Hmm. they need they need a lot of help in short periods of time so these folks came out and helped dig out uh big blue stem out of indian grass and you know we helped hard we did all this stuff and now we're going to go back. And so video team was there videoing that on the hottest day of the year. And then um, we're all going to get back together in November and, and do a hunt together. Wow. So no kidding. You know, yeah. Sort of the whole circle there. And we've got, we've got some other properties where we're going to do that. And so hopefully this turns out good. And Onyx will say, you know what, we want to continue to sponsor more of those. Cause man, if I've learned anything in this outdoor industry, the outdoor space is the storytelling is so important. I think that's why Ranella is so, um, you know, uh, successful and popular, popular. I mean, I know it is for me with him. I mean, the reason mm-hmm. I, you know, reached out to him the way that I did and we became friends is because he's such a great storyteller. Right. 
you know, and that so many things we just said there struck so many <laughs> Sorry, different man. nodes in my brain there. And I've got so many questions that I want to, I want to just rabbit holes. I want to dive down, but on that note there of telling the story, <clears throat> you know, we're, we're kind of in, in, in this modern age of social media and hunting is almost kind of the, the hunting culture. It seems like at times it's almost like it's being sold to us more so than, uh, I mean, not that hunting media hasn't always kind of been, you know, selling or you know, salesy a little bit, but, um, you know, it seems like we're selling the culture and there's a, a certain way it should look these days, um, you know, based off of, you know, what your social media, you know, algorithm looks like or what different companies are saying you should be doing and stuff like that. Um, and so, you know, that's particularly prominent in, you know, our kind of millennial and like Gen Z generations right now who either have kids or are getting ready to have kids. And, you know, there's a, a lot of really young eyes that are growing up in this, you know, modern age here where, um, you know, there, we all know the faction of people who think you need to either be wearing first light Sitka or Kui or Kiu or however you pronounce it. <laughs> Nobody knows how to pronounce it. Um, Nobody obviously knows. not one of your sponsors. No, 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 <laughs> not, nope. That is, that is a good assumption. There. No, but, but, you know, it, it makes you wonder though, you know, as those generations are, are coming up and this, this next generation of outdoorsmen here, um, you mentioned telling the story is huge, but I guess I'd love to hear your thoughts on like, what do you think we're getting right right now? And what do you think we need to improve upon? Hmm. Well, that's a, uh, that's an interesting question and not one that's been like posed to me before. And so thank you. Now you got me uh, hesitating a little bit because I'm going to start drilling rabbit holes again. Um, <laughs> So I think, uh, I mean, I get it, right? I get that. I mean, what the heck I'm making? I mean, I, we were joking before about, you know, a full-time job with a part-time salary or, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, I never thought that I would make a nickel in the outdoor space. And, um, you know, it's common misconception that I work for meat eater. Well, I don't, I'm not on their staff. I'm like a friend of Stephen Ellis. And so we've done some things and I just did a thing with Kenyon. Well, he's a friend of mine. Well, why did I meet him? Well, because they took me on a hunt to Alaska and he and I met and we've gotten to be friends and he does it full time. I don't, um, he's better at it than I am better at, at, at whitetail hunting. I mean, hell, everybody's better. Hell, I know I go down the street down here and introduce you to half a dozen guys who are better at whitetail hunting than I am. <laughs> but, um, but is that the point? Like mm. my friend, Pat Durkin, the outdoor writer, uh, and I talked one time about how he knew guys who were really good deer hunters who didn't know what kind of tree they had their stand hung in. Um, I think that <clears throat> what we're getting right is, People like Steve and and uh, and Mediator are telling really good stories, and Ryan Callahan, who's one of my favorite people in the world, um, is a great hunter. But first and foremost, he's a great conservationist, and he and he and sure he, you know, just like me, people think I hunt all over the place. I don't. I hunt here. This is, I mean, the one trip to Alaska, 
you know, one trip to the Boundary Waters that it was with with Pat, and you know that's kind of it. Otherwise, I'm I, I do my hunting here. Um, so there's I think what we're getting right with with people like Cal and Steve is that you're telling stories that are um, that are compelling and are interesting to people who are non hunters, mm-hmm. and showing hunting for more than just go out and kill and stuff, right? And um, there's a downside to that, of course, that all of a sudden I get all these people interested in Western hunting and I hear all these complaints about, we got too many people out here hunting. And it's like, well, it's all public land. You know, it's just because you're in Montana. Um, Federal land is belongs to all of us, right? I mean, public is public. Um, And so I don't, we can talk about those issues, but um, I think that, that we're describing, a lot of people are describing the bigger conservation space. You know, there's this old saying from back in the day, and I think it might even go back to Leopold. Hunting is conservation. And I it just kind of makes me go, if we were using a yardstick to measure, right? It's not conservation is a yardstick and hunting is, I'm sorry, Hunting is a yardstick and conservation is six inches of it. It's exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. Conservation, hunting is a part of conservation, not the other way around. Um, so I want to reiterate what, I, you know, the, the idea of that hunting is conservation. It can be, but it ain't necessarily so. And now people are going to go, yeah, but we buy the licenses that support that. Yeah, I, I know. And we buy the money and we buy the guns and the ammo and all that stuff that goes in the piss. I know. But What's one of the biggest things that's trying to be passed right now is in the um, farm bill, $150 million for voluntary public access. Right. That's public money from the general funds going to the farm bill to to uh, rent, to lease land from private landowners just for hunters to and ex, other access seekers to go on, 5% of the population, 10% of the population. That's not exactly the user model that we used to talk about, right? Mm. What's cool about VPA is the HIP part of it, the habitat improvement part of it. So a landowner who goes into VPA um, can also get these other incentives to improve their habitat, which I think is a great idea that those things are being tied together, right? They're being tied together in a, in a sensible way. Um, I, you know, that's, I could do a whole podcast on um, voluntary public access and how and what access what private land access is and what it can look like and um, and the good and the bad of it all, right? I mean, everything's got its, I mean, nothing's perfect. Um, so I, when there's something I think we're getting right is that we're beginning to, to, to think about that and that we're putting things into place and that we're, we're um, lobbying for that kind of thing, but also acknowledging it. I, there's, um, acknowledging the value of access, I think, is also something that we're we're getting right. Um, what we're getting wrong, uh, big giant bucks. I mean, Kenyon came here to kill a big giant buck. Guess what? He did. But you know what he did first? Killed a doe. So I told him, you can kill a doe, buddy. Kill two or three of them if you can. And we... Um, he and I spent a bunch of time talking off camera. Mark and I talk, you know, fairly regularly about things and we don't always agree. Um, 
that the focus on that, which is sort of where the industry started, right? I mean, it was like, man, when I was a kid, there weren't any. We got one channel when I was a kid. There weren't any hunting shows, or maybe it was Stan Brand's Outdoor Calling from the, you know, brought to you by the Joseph Huber Brewing Company in Monroe, Wisconsin. It's the only one I can remember, and it was hilarious. I wish there were recordings of that show somewhere. By the end of that show, Stan had half half a dozen of those Joseph Huber Brewing Company beers in him, and he was, you know, it was hilarious <laughs> to watch the show. Um, but then, um, uh, I'm trying to remember the thing on NBC, the American Sportsman on on NBC, um, and we had to go down to my grandpa's place to see NBC. But I remember seeing that Kurt Gowdy and the American Sportsman. So now it's just you know it's just all this focus on all of the you know everybody. There's a lot of people trying to get, and a lot of people have gotten famous. Well, there's a there's a demand for it, right? It's the Americanization of anything. Um, you want here's a crazy analogy. So part of the way I make my living and I have made my living getting closer to retirement all the time is to build and manage athletic fields. I have a earth science background and work for an engineering company as a project manager, build a lot of athletic fields and manage them, put maintenance programs together for them. Um, my wife and I regularly go uh, to Mexico in the winter time. And uh, I met a guy who was a, uh, when one of our trips who was on the Mexican national soccer team. And he goes, oh, you come over and take a look at our fields and see if you can tell me what to, I met him through some people. So I go over there and here's a bunch of kids playing soccer with a ball with tape on it, you know, holding it together with, I mean, these fields were, they weren't fields. They were, you know, kind of sand and gravel. And these kids were playing their butts off. I mean, it was some really good soccer. And I was like, you know, kind of looking at it. And then I come back to where I'm building and managing soccer fields, um, synthetic soccer fields, $1.5 million projects, right? And here's a bunch of 10-year-old kids come to the soccer park and they've got the uniforms on and they've got the, all the stuff and they've got the, you know, and their parents are all wearing the right clothes for it because it's got a club emblem on it and all of that. And I never thought, I mean, I thought, well, soccer's the simplest game in the world, right? You got a ball, you got a net, you got a bunch of people kicking it around. Hey, here we go. Oh, no, that's not true at all. It can, very, it can be very complicated. But we have this way of doing that, like taking the taking something that at its thing, thing and there's a joy in it, and then it becomes, well, you got to have this, and you got to have that, and you got to... And I saw that in soccer, man, I was, I played college basketball. I, I coached in high school when I was a high school teacher. You know, we had some of that too. Um, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I, I'm not just blaming it on soccer. It's just something that's been on my mind lately or showing it in, in soccer. I wonder sometimes like these little schools, why do they still have a football team when they only got 20 kids in a graduating class, you know, they're spending all this money on a football team. And that's because it's sort of this tradition to it. Well, when I was a kid and I first got to go deer hunting, I had a same 3030 Winchester that my brothers and I all learned on. My first hunting jacket was a red. This is how old I am. Red was, you wore red when you went in the woods, not blaze orange. <laughs> and my first hunting jacket or red top was a red pajama top that my father used to wear and put this white thing on. Like he was Santa Claus when we were really little. And 
my mom sewed my back tag because in Wisconsin, you had to wear a back tag. My mom sewed my back tag to that. And I was wearing my buckle boots and jeans and the whole, I mean, you know, there were five shells in the gun and I might've had an extra one or two in my pocket. I'm sitting there next to my dad next to a tree. I was deer hunting just as much as the guy who goes out and spend 10 grand on all the equipment that he's going to have. And go. I was just as much a deer hunter as he was. Mm. So those are the things. And um, so <laughs> people sponsor me and I have those discussions with them about it. You know, it's like, man, I don't know. Um, you know, Vortex Optics and my favorite people in the world. I, you know, it's like at some point, don't you have enough? Um you know, guns are the same way. All of this is the same way. And then I think uh, people are interested in it. They want to continue to, they, they want better. They want to improve. It's their hobby, which is very different than when I was a kid. When I was a kid, to get to go hunting was something that we got to do when the work on the farm was done. We got to go squirrel hunting. We got to go rabbit hunting. We got to go deer hunting. Not until the work was done. Now we've got properties, some of them Josh and I manage for people. <laughs> That's all yeah. I got them for, right? right? Is for hunting. Right. Good, bad, well, different. Like I said, those properties tend to be the ones that get to be to get more intensive management. And if I get the opportunity to work with someone like that, I really push wildlife habitat management, not deer management. Right. Deer, white tail deer live anywhere. Um and if we're managing for all species, you know, going back to that land ethic, and we see ourselves as a part of that community, not the master of it, that we're going to treat it differently. And I think there's, there's a greater good in all of that. And you can still have good hunting and you can still have all of that. Um, I like having the gear, though, too. I mean, it's like fun. I mean, you know, so you get it, right? It's a different thing. I remember the people next door over here, they would drive our woods. We didn't care. My dad let them. Go ahead. They literally didn't have enough guns for everybody to have a gun. They say so people out there hitting buckets as they're walking through the woods, pushing the deer out. They, you know, the people on the end of the drive had guns, of course. We've actually, I've never given anybody a bucket out here, but I've had non-hunters come and want to experience hunt. I'm like, okay, orange jacket, you're going to walk through, help us walk, you know, push. We're looking for a deer that might be injured, or we're going to push this little thing. want to go and help us. And they're like, wow, what an interesting way to experience hunting. Um, all of that, you know, I mean, it's just a lot of it's different. I think, um, and, and who doesn't want to kill a big giant buck, you know, mm -hmm. but if that's, and if that is your focus, then we got to have another discussion about how do we do the best thing for the habitat and the best thing for the resource and still have that well, usually starts with doing a better job managing the deer herd, at least in whitetail country, which is a whole other thing that I'm pretty passionate about. Um, you know, here in my area, we have chronic wasting disease. We have a big overpopulation of deer in most of my area. Mm -hmm. um, now the area where CWD has become very prevalent, they're not having such a deer population problem anymore. Mother nature taking care of it. Whereas, if you're in an area where you can have an impact on that, you can still have big giant bucks, a balanced herd. 
And at least that's the, the idea, right? A lot of those National Deer Association, formerly QDMA, a lot of those ideas. Let's reduce that herd. Let's have a more balanced herd. Let's have a healthier herd. Much more. I mean, part of the reason it's not the Quality Deer Management Association anymore is because they, well, they um, combined with the National Deer Alliance, and they began to focus much more on healthy deer management. Mm. Mm-hmm. Healthy deer management. Yeah. Healthy ecosystems, healthy deer. You know, help, healthy wildlife. Um, what, going back to your question, Pierce, that I think is one of the things that we're starting to get right. The habitat, I get challenged. Steve Rinella challenged me about, what are you so supportive of pheasants forever for? You know, a ringneck ditch chicken. And um, I was like, because it's a habitat. Yeah, you've heard it before. It's the habitat organization. And it is about habitat, right? Um, and I will, you know, and so the side benefit is it's this exotic species. It's not an invasive species. Um, somebody might correct me, but pheasants tend to live in places where they're not out competing some other uh, animal, some other bird, right? right? I mean, maybe a little bit of conflict with the prairie chicken and stuff like that, but um, <clears throat> I don't get the impression and I need to learn more about that. So please don't write in and start telling these guys that I'm full of baloney. Um, but there's a difference between an exotic species and invasive species. We have native species that are invasive, you know? Um, and so those are all kinds of things that are, are part of this conversation that I think uh, that I think that we need to think about, you know, I'm thinking about thinking, <laughs> um, but so there we are, you know, did yeah, I answer yeah. your question, Pierce? Yeah, absolutely. No, you made a really interesting point there too, about CWD and how, if we're not doing our part as hunters and conservationists to go in there and thin the herd out ourselves by, you know, shooting more does maybe, or, you know, whatever that, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on what the best way to, to mitigate that is, is if it is shooting more does or if it's, you know, just shooting more deer in general. Um, but if, if we don't take care of that, or, you know, or do our part to help maintain that and re- reduce the the herd pressure on itself and the, the rate of um, transmission, you know, of C- CWD, eventually it's going to reach a point where, it's going to go from being crazy high numbers of deer to a big deflation when they all get each other sick and then die out. What is it? I guess, what, what is your, your thought on, um, you know, the best way to mitigate uh, CWD? So chronic wasting diseases, it's uh, I'm actually finishing an article right now for uh, Savage. I've finished it three times and keep going back. And while we were talking, a couple of things just came back from NDA. I'm uh, be interested to see what they have to say, because I asked them some pretty specific questions. That kind of goes back to one of those things where you're talking to a biologist mm-hmm. who is an expert in the field. And one of the things that they'll say is, Combine these this science with your experience, right? So I've been in a CWD zone for over 20 years now. Um, we were on the northern end of the management zone here in southwest Wisconsin. We didn't have any CWD until we did let me rephrase that. I didn't we didn't have a deer test positive for CWD until seven years ago. And we got a lot of deer tested. 
which showed me that it was spreading, right? What Only was interesting seven, to really? What's that? Only seven years, really. Yeah, well, I'm on. I'm so you're familiar with the area, and it doesn't really help the listeners that much. But so down in Mount Horeb, the Mount Horeb area is where the first uh, positives were. It was on the south side of the river. Yep. They did a huge. I mean, you can look at these numbers. I mean, anytime somebody starts saying, "Oh, it's always been here," eh, you can. How then do you explain that all of this testing, so much testing, was done? Once, the, once it was discovered, right? And it was discovered because it was a sick deer. And boy, one of the things that I can tell you about seeing a sick deer is if you've seen one, you got more than that. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Um, it's like rats. If you've seen a rat on your place, yeah, you got more rats than that. Or mice, you know, it's all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so they then went into this extensive testing campaign in a very big area, including our area. We are I don't know, 60 miles north of there, 45 straight north, I suppose, but that's not how a deer walks, right? Um, in 2002, so 2003, and, you know, all this stuff starts happening. And all we were getting every deer tested that they wanted to get tested. I mean, it was just like, well, why wouldn't I, right? Why wouldn't I? Um, and nothing's coming back positive. We killed, I remember uh, Giannis and Mating and uh, Patelis and, and their dad, uh, Papa Yanni and and then all these Latvians from from up at their deer camp up there in, in Toma came down one day and we shot a pile of deer. And I just remember we had a stack of deer in the back of the truck. And there was year and a half olds and some fawns, and there were two and a half year olds, and there was a five-year-old buck in there. He only had one eye. We called him Lucky. Um, that one of the Latvian <laughs> dudes got. I mean, we just was like, like there's a cross-section of our herd. Does, fawns. Old bucks, young bucks, old fawns, or old does, younger does, cross-section. I mean, it was a bunch. We killed a bunch of deer that, that year, still do. Not one of those deer tested positive. Not one of them. Just astounding, you know, when you, you think about it. And that was eight years ago. And then the following year, the first year that we had test positive were two-and-a-half-year-old and year-and-a-half-old year uh, bucks. So you think about deer behavior and the whole idea of frequency dependency Mm -hmm. and a buck's going to go out and, you know, so how are they, how is it being spread? So, um, so my head's so deep into this article right now that um, I'll give you this very quickly. It spreads two ways, right? I mean, there's this, there's this argument about it. It's a frequency dependent disease or it's a density dependent disease. It's one or the other. And it's like density dependent means that, um, the higher population, that it spreads more frequently, more quickly through a higher population because they're crowded. To, there's more of them together, right? And you could think about that. Well, if you got, I, I don't know why I would use a bar analogy, but, uh, you know, let's talk about being in a bar. And there's a, a bunch of people in a bar, and one of them is sick. And that person um, has got a communicable or transmittable or uh, uh, disease. They got a cold. And they're, you know, kind of just hanging out with the friends that they hang out with, two or three people there, but there's 200 people in there. There's a bunch of people crowded around. But who's going to get sick out of that group? Well, it's most likely to be the people that he's immediately in contact with. That's frequency dependent, right? So, and so there's a whole thing about does and family groups. And, you know, once that doe has it, she's going to spread it to her family group because they they are... uh, 
um, what's the word I'm looking for? Loyal isn't the word, um, but they, they, they spend a lot of time together. So it makes sense that they would. Well, then the other one, so that's frequency dependent, but let's say um, in that same bar, there's a couple of dudes who come in and they're like, Hey, how you doing? And they go over and they talk to those people and they put their arm around them and they, they pick up this communicable disease. And now they're going to spend the rest of the evening walking around talking to different people and trying to make friends with, you know, young ladies there or dudes that are there or whatever, you know? And so now they're the ones who are spreading it around. That also is frequency dependent, Mm -hmm. right? Population dependent is if you got a bunch of people where they can come in contact or, or a bunch of deer who can come in contact with each other, the higher the population, the more likely it is that it's going to spread within that group because they're just coming in contact more often. And we don't know how often do they have to come in contact? How long does it take? Uh, you know, you know, does, do some of us get sick? I mean, how do you catch a cold or, you know, whatever communicable disease you want to talk about in the last few years, <laughs> um, but how do you catch a cold or any kind of virus, you know, very different than, 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 than prions and CWD in terms of what it is, but not how it spread. Mm. So there was all this scientific discussion about it's a frequency dependent disease. It's a density dependent disease. Logically it's both. When I would have a sick animal and I don't know what's wrong with it, I get it away from the rest of them. Mm -hmm. Um, Pink eye is something that we deal with kind of every summer and it's, it's, gets spread well you get that animal away from them and you from the others um because it's how it spreads between with the flies and all this stuff and the grass that they're in and so if you get one you want to get it kind of away from everybody else you know if you're sick why do they tell you to stay home from work so you're not getting everybody else sick right but if you walk into your if it's if if you're someone who walks into to this bar and you're sick or into this situation and you're and then now you take that and you're you know wiping your nose and then walking around and talking to people and shaking hands. Well, I mean, think about that in terms of like deer behavior. You can figure that out, right? So how is it within a higher population, it only makes sense that it's going to spread more quickly because there's more contact. You know, somebody from this group is going over to that group, you know, go back to that bar analogy. And then, um, but also the frequency dependent idea that there's this, I mean, you guys, know this you like i've got a group i've got groups of deer out here that be you'll know, say well, that's the old doe and there's her her fawn from two years ago and her you know and all of a sudden you can see it's a family group well one of them gets it they're spreading within it within them uh, within that group bucks being the most um widely traveled but then also think about bachelor groups one of them in a bachelor group so those guys are doing grooming and they're doing all that stuff they're going to and all these are all natural behaviors right so both both frequency and population so you take that um and go well what's the best thing that we can do well, what are the best things that we can do let's keep that population in balance with the ecosystem well, and you know, you want to start talking about carrying capacity. People say, "Well, what's carrying capacity of a place like this, where we've got all this agriculture and everything?" I don't. I don't I'm not going to talk about carrying capacity. I am going to tell you that I'll go out there, and where a lot of my native species have been over browsed because we had so many deer. 
What ends up replacing them is not more native species, it's invasive species like multiflora rose and autumn olive and Japanese barberry and buckthorn. And, you know, that's the woody stuff. And the, 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 so, and, and deer don't eat that stuff. They just don't. It's not, there's a reason invasive species do so well, right? Because right. nobody likes it. Mm-hmm. Um, can you imagine an invasive species that would, well, I guess we do some of it with exotic species and with the plantings and stuff that we do, but. So when I go out and I see that over browsing, that tells me I've got an unhealthy ecosystem. I got too many deer. The focus on deer has been one of the what are we what are we you're saying what are we getting right what are we getting wrong? Part of what we're getting wrong is focusing on well I just want to have big giant bucks. Well, if you want to have big giant bucks, that's a different discussion that we can have. But um, if you want to just have big giant bucks then you probably ought to go out there and kill a whole bunch of does because you'll see more if you if you get that balance where you've got, you know, where you've got a closer to one-to-one ratio. Um, that means fewer deer. Fewer deer means disease will spread less, will, will, will spread more slowly. Um, maybe bucks are going to go out and travel a little bit more if, um, if there aren't a, a bunch of does around. But on balance, the best thing is a, a healthy population, which is a lower population, and how low? Way lower than anybody thinks. Right. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, we've got 75 deer per square mile habitat in this county, in parts of this county. In some parts of this county, it's a lot less than that. Because what ends up happening is, is that what ended up happening south of us down here is that the population, the disease started to spread so quickly that it takes a while because it's a, you know, it takes a long time for that disease to kill a deer. It's two years. And then it takes this almost this exponential growth that has to happen. But one of the things we know about exponential growth is also you get to a tipping point. And once you get to that tipping point, then that's when the crash gets. So you'll have this big buildup within a population. And what ends up happening with unchecked, um, and I know I'm speaking like I'm an expert in this whole thing. I'm not, I'm just kind of talking about some of my animal husbandry background and understanding of how animals are, but then also the stuff that I've read and, and the people that I talk to, and then, you know, just some of it's just logic, right? Um, just common sense, not even logic, just common sense, which are not always the same thing. Anyway, <laughs> um, that what happens is, and we're seeing this South, I deal with landowners South of me here all the time. And they're like, we're not seeing older bucks. We're seeing fewer deer and the deer that we're seeing are younger deer. Well, it only makes sense, right? Because if a deer gets, how old is a buck going to get? If he's a, we've had, I've had friends who I haven't, we haven't had it happen here yet where we had a positive fawn. What is a buck fawn at six months old that gets shot in, let's say the holiday hunt here, <clears throat> an antlerless hunt in January test positive. Even if he had made it through, how old was he going to possibly get to be? A two and a half year old, maybe. Right. Right. And that's problematic. And the more prevalent the disease come becomes, the more younger deer have it. So they don't get to be those older deer. If they're picking it up when they're two and a half or three and a half years old, they're gonna get they're gonna get killed here before they're before they succumb to the disease. Um because we just five and six year old deer around here, bucks anyway, were have always been rare, extremely rare. So, you know, that's the other part of it. But I will tell you this, in the last two years, 
60% of the bucks last year, we shot 10 the year before uh, eight on the farm, 60% of them tested positive for CWD. Right. So some of those, uh, we never had a year and a half old since those first couple. And that always made me wonder, well, were those were little bucks that got kicked out of there and they were just looking for new range. Mm. Um, you know, the deer behavior is an interesting thing too. We think we know so much about deer behavior and I know a lot of people that do, but then you have to temper that with what your, what your experience is too. Um, uh, so this idea that, that somehow it'll take care of itself. Well, it will, but what, you're not going to like the results. So if you're concerned about big giant bucks, you should be concerned about CWD as well and controlling it. If you're concerned about having a healthy deer herd, well, you're going to be controlled about CWD and, and controlling it. And what, I mean, the number one, number one thing you can do is, Reduce population. Right alongside of that is not passing on bucks. Because mm. bucks are the ones who are most likely to have it, and they are the, the ones who are most likely to spread it as well. But as my friends at NDA will point out, there's a really interesting article. I don't remember if it was Kip Adams or Lindsey Thomas who wrote this. It was like, don't ignore the nose. And I got into a whole argument with some friends of mine um, about this because I was like, yeah, but, you know, don't lose the focus on bucks either. I, I don't. I, do I pass on bucks? Yes. Well, I only got one buck tag. You know, so I, what I tell people here is shoot any deer that you want. We used to wear you know, the sombrero and this whole thing about buck management mm -hmm. that we did. And now it's like, I want you to shoot a buck. I want you to shoot a couple of does. I would like to. So we shot 40 deer on the farm last year. 30 of them were antlerless. I think five or six of those were nubbin bucks. Um, But so that kind of ratio, right? So we're shooting somebody do the math for me three to one um you know we're shooting 40 deer and only 10 of them are antlered bucks so um but people and, and then we don't have any of this stuff where i'm telling a guy oh that's too young of a deer you shouldn't have shot that buck i went through all that shit and it's just not that much fun to manage people mm -hmm. i like people go, being able to go out there and feeling good about whatever it is that they take so our rules went from you know i'd rather let those younger ones go to take a good ethical shot and be happy about that deer and we'll be happy with you. Right. And, and what's so interesting. And, and, and then just like to shoot 40 deer on this farm, if you'd have told me that well, even 15 years ago, I'd say, man, that's a lot. I don't know. <laughs> but, but, um, 20 years ago, yeah, it was 20 years ago. It was 2003. My neighbor up the road got, um, ag tags, the, you know, agricultural damage tags. Mm -hmm. He shot 16 antlerless deer. The next year, it was just like every other deer you saw was a big giant buck. And I mean, in those days, a two and a half or three and a half was a big giant buck. And now we're back to, well, a three and a half year old around here is a big giant buck. The buck that Kenyon shot was a four year old. Um, they just don't get much older than that around here. I mean, it's just, and that's okay. You know, I mean, that's a trophy to anybody. I'm not upset. I mean, it, it probably helps to have killed one that's 190 inches, but um, I'm just not obsessed with them. You know, I'm just not obsessed with that. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in healthy deer. This dear friend of mine um, shot a buck three years ago now that I knew was sick. I saw it. It was standing in the yard of the place next door that I take care of. And I'm like, that deer ain't right. Because mm. he just stood there and five-year-old buck stood there and looked at me with a look on his face of deer in the headlights. Mm. Mm. 
And a five-year-old buck don't do that. Right. You know, and this is this time of the year. It was the first man, middle part of October. And uh, my buddy ended up killing him about 10 days later, about a hundred yards from where I saw him in the yard of the, I was in the yard of this property and he was up on the hill and he, I mean, the guy's, I mean, I don't want to disparage his hunting abilities, but he's a pretty new, new, new hunter. I was happy as I could be for him, but I was like, Hey, $10. It says that thing's going to be CWD positive. Cause I knew it was the same deer. I had pictures of it. And he just, it just looked, looked at me like it didn't register with me. What, it, what, what was going on. So, um, so cool. He got to kill. He killed a trophy. It was CWD positive and he doesn't eat the meat and neither do I. Um, and, but he got a trophy out of it and he took it off the landscape and you know, all of that stuff, all that stuff enters into your head, man, when you're doing this, doing this stuff. Um, personally, when I shoot deer with the ones that I take for myself, I'm are the younger ones. They're way less likely to be positive. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, a year and a half old to a, um, you know, to a fawn. I mean, like skin and rabbits and, you know, that's, you can't, you're not going to do any better with that meat. Right. So we'll kill older deer and we donate those and people are going to go, Oh yeah. So you give the CWD deer away. Well, we donate them to the CW uh, to the venison donation program. And what happens is that meat gets deboned at a licensed locker and it gets separated, and until that CWD thing comes back, those guys get paid to process that meat one way or the other. Mm. And if it's positive, then it gets discarded. Um, but if it's not detected, then it goes into the food pantry program. So, you're, you know, it's just trying to mitigate all this stuff at you know at all times. And part of that is what's happened with um, just having dealt with this for as long as we have. Um, the disposal is a whole other thing, right? So some folks and I started this disposal program. This is going to be the sixth year. And they didn't, we didn't even have one here in Wisconsin. Right. They did for a while and then it went away. And then we're like, you know, I shot my mouth off with Brian Richards uh, from USGS. We were on Joe Rogan's podcast. And I was like, I, on the way out there, we were flying out. I was like, how come we don't do this? He goes, I don't know. You know, he just was like, well, they used to, but then it's a funding thing. And I'm like, Seems to me this is, and I said something about it on Rogan's podcast. Well, now I, you know, I don't know how many million people listen to that, but I guess I'm going to have to do something about it now. Well, thankfully, <laughs> I had some friends who were interested in helping with it, and we ended up funding a dumpster program in our county, and DNR took note of it and said, we want to try to help you with that. And now it's a statewide program. Right. We don't have to pay for all of it anymore, um, which is great. I, I don't think we should have to pay for any of it, given the time that we put into it. But DNR just doesn't have the funding because of legislators, again, not thinking of, they're thinking about something else, not what's best for the for the situation, you know. Right. Um, so, we you know, we did that dumpster program. Um, I have a kiosk down here where. People can drop their heads off, the doe heads off, or their buck heads if they want. In fact, my buddy's a taxidermist, and I get a lot of uh, caped-out buck heads uh, dropped off, which is an interesting thing, too. Um, and then I take those to a, to my friend uh, who, who has – she's got an intake place, and she actually gets paid to process the heads. Um, and we have a dumpster. I 
sponsors two dumpsters in those two locations. And people have really stepped up and helped us with the the out of pocket. It's five hundred. It's cost a thousand dollars. It cost me a thousand dollars a year to um, put put those dumpsters out, and um, DNR covers the rest of it. And through donations, we pretty much get it all covered now. So all I have in it is my time and an old farm joke about what's time to a pig. So um, <laughs> it's, you know, it's one of those things. How do you, why do you do this? And, and, and how, what can you do? And it's pretty simple. These are things that I can, it's kind of things that anybody can do. And it's been really cool mm-hmm. to see people get involved with the dumpster program, the kiosk program. And, and um, so those are, I think some of the things too, to go back to your earlier question, that I think we're getting right. Sure. Um, are you a little disappointed when they did away with earn a buck? Oh, a little disappointed would be an understatement. Um, uh, earn a buck is the best deer management policy that there is. Mm-hmm. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. We killed more does then bucks like on a three or four to one margin here. When they were, if you guys were hunting here, then you got the little stickers that you put on your card. Yeah. Man, yeah. we had a little stack of them here <laughs> because we had killed so many does. I mean, and we weren't going out and killing a buck right away then with it. You know, you were still only taking a buck, maybe two. It was always nice to, boy, it was a, motiv- it's a motivator to be able to go out there and go buck hunting and shoot a doe too, right? But you got a buck tag in your pocket. So if you saw a good buck, you could shoot him. And I don't think that there were a whole lot of hunters who were like, well, I'm going to go out and shoot. I'm going to shoot a doe so I can go and shoot another buck. And they're going out and shooting some little year and a half old um, or two and a half year old. Right. But earn a buck was knocking that freaking herd back so much. And right. I mean, like all my bow hunting buddies are like, man, it was the best thing in the world. Cause there was the bucks were on their feet. Mm-hmm. You know, who's going to get up and walk around if you got a half a dozen those who are coming to you. So, you know, you're getting, the, so they're having to go out and pursue and look for does and the buck hunting was better than we had bigger bucks too. Cause a lot of, you know, a lot of gun hunters too, a lot of hunters in general, you kill one deer. It's like, well, that's how much I'm going to use. Well, Wisconsin has for over uh, two decades now has had a venison donation program. So it's not, well, I'm only going to shoot. If I don't use it, I'm going to, you know, they have this holier than now attitude. If I, if I'm not going to use it, I'm not going to shoot it. And I'm like, well, how about doing what the best thing is maybe for the herd and for the future of all this, all they're carrying, you know, but when you, we, there's been some social studies surveys done and hunters tend to be most concerned about their own experience. Well, I get that. But you also need to interject these these other ideas, right? Um, And so how do you kill 40 deer on a farm like ours? And, you know, and make it still be so you're not just exterminating deer. Well, I'll tell you, one year, six, seven years ago, God, I've been more than that, eight, nine years ago, um, I shot seven does one day. I'll never do it again. And... I literally sat and just kept dropping them as they came out in the field. You know, I was a deer exterminator. Mm. I butchered or I I field dressed them all. It was um, in the later season and um, it was cold and I field dressed them all. I kept two young ones, small ones to butcher for myself. And I took the other ones to the venison donation program. 
But two things happened to me. One was, man, I felt like a deer exterminator. And I, I like white-tailed deer more than that. I don't want to feel like I'm just there exterminating them, right? I mean, I'm sure I was doing the right thing, doing a good thing. But I didn't feel good about it. And man, it's a lot of work all of a sudden right. to field dress seven deer. <laughs> That's the first out. thing that came to mind when you said that. Yeah. <laughs> well, late night. You know, and so I remember thinking high-mindedly, well, wouldn't it be great if some more, more people could have this experience? And um, that's how you get, you give more, you give that opportunity to more people. Right. Um, there are way more deer in our area than, than most people think there are. Um, and uh, why not? You know, one of the things that we have is a, we have an issue with access um, when I started the sharing land initiative, I'll try to tie this together. The idea was that, um, yeah, that, yeah, what's in this for me? Well, and what I would ask people was what's your contribution to conservation? I have a friend, um, Brock Rosencrantz, who's, um, young guys in his early thirties. I've known him for holy moly, eight or 10 years now. And I first met him at a conservation Congress meeting and there he is at the Wisconsin Conservation Congress meeting, which, and it's usually like even somebody like me walks in there at age 64 and the, the average age of the room goes down because it's a lot <laughs> of old guys. It seems like, <laughs> so here's Brock, this young dude there, you know, and I, Hey, how you doing? And blah, blah, blah. And, you know, he's like, Oh, I know you, you're from, yeah. It's like, Oh yeah, I'm from chaos. He goes, no, I know you're from meat eater. I'm like, yeah, that's, that's nice. And then we talked a little bit. And then the next year I go to the Conservation Congress and there he is again. So he got elected that night to be in the Conservation Congress. So wow. beforehand we're talking and I'm like, cool, man, this is great that you're doing this. And uh, it's uh, great, glad to see a young person taking the initiative, getting involved with conservation in this way. He's still in the Conservation Congress, as am I too, because of him. But um we we're talking before the meeting again. And I was like, well, how's your turkey season? You know, you got to talk about something, right? So I go, well, how's your turkey season shaping up? He goes, well, pretty good. Things are a little different this year. I'm going to have to hunt some public because the place I used to hunt got sold and the new owner doesn't want me on it and stuff. And I was like, you know, Brock, here you are volunteering your time for conservation. Um, doing this good work. If you end up needing a place to turkey hunt, give me a call. I got, I'll make room for you. And I think at that very moment, Brock quit looking for another place to hunt. But, um, <laughs> but he's been a part of my group ever since because mm -hmm. he made that contribution to conservation. He wasn't looking for something first. He was already putting into it. Right. And so yeah. really became that whole thing. Well, what's your contribution to conservation? I've had people come out here and shoot does that I've invited to come out and hunt. They're not here coming here to, to buck hunt. They're coming here. You, your contribution to conservation on my farm is to shoot a doe. Mm -hmm. And then they're all, then they're always like, well, how could I come back? And I'm like, well, we can talk about that differently, but, um, or sometimes or not. It's also a good way of getting to know somebody. Right. Sure. Um, Let me ask you this. So you mentioned that you took 40 deer off your property last year. Was the majority of that during gun season or was that throughout archery as well? Come on. <laughs> I think I know the answer to that. We manage <laughs> we manage deer with guns. We do sure. not manage deer with bows. You can look at the numbers for the. I was just I was just giving you the same look I gave Mark Kenyon. Um, but as I said, he shot a doe first. Um, you can look at the numbers in any part of the state, 
and the buck kill out. The only time that the doe kill was higher than the buck kill by any significant amount was during Ernabuck. Yeah. And the only time the doe kill is higher than the buck kill is during the gun season. And the numbers are completely different, right? So let's just, it is what it is. Bow hunters, for the most part, generally speaking, are out there to kill a big giant buck because they're getting to hunt during the, or they're out there to kill a buck, right? Because they're out there during that period of time. And you know what, folks, if you're listening to this and you're saying, baloney, Doug Duran, you're, eh, the numbers, the numbers just don't support it. Individuals, sure. I know individual bull hunters have killed two or three does along with a buck, but that's not what the numbers show. There are more does, I'm sorry, more bucks killed by by bull hunters than does, and the numbers just don't support deer management. And quite honestly, the gun numbers don't anymore either. We need to kill more deer. Um, so the answer uh, last year of 40, four of, four of them were killed by uh, bow hunters, two, bo- two bucks and two does. The other 36 were killed with small pieces of copper at very high velocities. <laughs> That makes sense to me. Yeah, it's it's astonishing too when you, as you said that, um, you know, I was picturing the graph um, when the the DNR puts out their annual deer survey and stuff, and they've shown it over the years where you can see that doe harvest, um, you know, to buck harvest and everything, and you like exactly it just plummets, like it is unbelievable. And uh, you know, I think a lot of people they 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 manage their land. You know, a lot of guys are big bow hunters, right? In Wisconsin, you know, at the end of the day, there is still that desire to shoot a big buck and all that. And guys are worried about, well, I don't want to pressure my land, you know, before the rut and then, you know, risk blowing deer out and stuff like that. Or I don't want to disrupt things too much. Um, But, but like you said, I mean, you're taking 40 deer off the landscape and I doubt this year you've seen too much of a dip in, uh, I mean, shoot, killed, you just said, you just said Kenyon shot a um, five and a half one, year old yeah, or a four and a half, four and a half year old. Yeah. Four and a half year old. Yeah. Buck. Um, a dandy. I mean, and, and the good news is, is he got his uh, results back mm-hmm. and neither one of them were positive. That neither good. the six to eight year old doe or the four year old buck were, they were neither, neither one of them were positive. No kidding. Do you think yeah. that has to do with how they move just because as they age, they do things a little bit differently? The older deer that we've been killing have mm-hmm. been testing positive because, and that okay, shows gotcha. me that the disease. So I was quite honestly, I was pretty happy to hear that. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm always happy to hear a non, you know, non-positive. Um, but it made me go, hmm. Cause last year, four and a half year old was positive. Three, three and a half year olds were positive. You know, that's a little, uh, yeah, it doesn't bode well, right? I mean, it tells you that the disease is much more entrenched. Mm-hmm. But so what I'd say is, you know what? Killing 40 deer last year, killing 40 deer the year before, 30 year the deer, deer before that, 30 year deer the year before that. We killed a lot of freaking deer here in the last five, six years. Right. I mean, we used to kill a dozen deer. We thought it was a lot. And then we mm-hmm. just was like, let's ratchet it up. And I got neighbors who think I'm out of my mind. I mean, People don't like me because of this. And you know, I, think I give them other reasons to not like me too. <laughs> but um, but uh, you know, I'm putting my I'm putting my land where my mouth is in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I'm and I mean 
people are getting that, you know, making sure people are getting that opportunity. And here's the thing. Kenyon came and he killed big giant buck. Um, and, you know, and not only to kill a doe first, he also helped me for a day on the farm. I mean, he earned it. And I've, I, invi- yeah. I, mean, I've, I invited him first by the end of the first trip that I met him. Um, and yeah, I filmed and sure it's going to be on meat eater and, you know, it's all that too. I mean, I'm not trying to say, Oh, I just did this cause he's a friend of mine. Of course mm-hmm. it's all of that stuff is a part of it. Right. And then we've got another filmed hunt coming up, but, um, we, I'll also have, and so with the filmed hunts, there'll be what, four people, five people. Yeah. And there'll still be almost 40 other people who hunt here. So it's not, I mean, there's a balance in there, I guess is what I'm trying to sure. get at. Um, uh, yeah. So I don't know what else you want to talk about with that. No, <laughs> no, no. I, I was just curious to um, kind of just yeah, because I do think a lot of people they they get paranoid that well, if I kill too many deer, then shoot, I'm I'm, I'm going to thin out the herd too much, and then I won't have any deer to hunt next. That, that, year, that's just crazy talk. I mean, it, it's just those are people who are not paying attention. Mm-hmm. Um. <laughs> and I know I'm calling you out folks, but that it's, you're not paying attention. If you think that's the case. Now I'll go up to Northern Monroe County up here um, by Toma, Camp McCoy and Giannis uh, and his, and the Latvians up there, you know, like, hey, I don't see that many deer. And I was like, well, how much do you hunt? And it was, you know, the guys are older than me, some of those old Latvian dudes and they're coming up there for opening weekend and then they're going home. Well, mm-hmm. you know, there's some of that, but I've also spent enough time on that property to go, Hmm. Yeah, you don't have the deer population that we do. But then Giannis starts putting out trail cameras, and he's like, we're seeing some nice deer here. I think they're kind of a situation where I would like to be, where the numbers aren't they aren't great. They aren't yeah. big. I don't want big numbers of deer. I want, to help. I want to grow oak trees, which is real hard when you've got the number of deer that we have around here. Mm-hmm. Um, and But we're doing it. Um, but when you're looking at 75 deer per square mile of habitat and 85% of your county is habitat, and except for that hottest, the biggest hot zone down there, they're scattered around. Well, I sat out all opening weekend and I, yeah, I know. I'm not just sitting out there opening weekend and the people that I know and I respect in this whole thing are not out there opening weekend. We flew a drone over this farm in the third week or fourth week of January last year essentially a square mile yeah. that we flew it over. We counted over 200 deer. No kidding. After we killed 40. Holy smokes. So <laughs> um, we got one of my uh, people stopping in here right now, but because um, mm-hmm. I knew we, we said we were going to be done by about now, but now, yep, yep, no, I know. <laughs> but anyway, that, those are, you know, those are, uh, those are all things that are part of the process, right? And to me, that's part really a big part of the, the, the why I'm interested in this, because it's management, it's um, it's uh, it's being a part of the biotic community. It's involving other people. It's the shared experience. Um, it's fun. It's interesting. And you know, I go back to the beginning when we were talking about my. Uh, we were talking about my family when we put our LLC together that now is what uh, is the uh, operating agreement for this place. We had a 
couple of goals. One of them was we want to do the right thing. Well, that's pretty big, pretty wide open thing, but the right thing, quote unquote, right? And the other thing is, is that we wanted to be a good example. And um, I can sit here with confidence and tell you that we're, we're trying to do the right thing all the time, no matter what conservation action or whatever it is that we're trying to do. Um, and that we're trying to be a good example. And I, you know, some people might think that maybe we're not, but I, I, I beg to differ with them. I think we're doing a pretty good job here. I will tell you one more thing about conservation mm-hmm. because you're a trout fisherman. When I was a kid, this creek down here in the, in the bottom where our pasture goes through was wide, shallow, muddy, and warm because of the way the land was being used. There was a dairy farm. We had a hundred and whatever many cattle on this property. That was a big part of our pasture. In the part of the summer, cattle, you know. So um, about 10 years ago, well, in 1988, most of the farm went into CRP. So, and then it came out, some of it came out for a while, went back into production and stuff. But the, the, Pastures got started. We started using them very differently. Low, still, still being pastured, but much lower mm. numbers. And those crick, that crick actually naturally healed itself. It narrowed. So now it's narrow, it's deep, it's fast, it's cold, and it's clean. Two years ago, DNR Fisheries came out here, and this is so we're on the Baraboo River uh, watershed. Yeah, they came out and contacted me and said, "Hey, we're gonna." you know, check your stream. Um, I'm like, yeah, cool. And so I came out the day they were doing it. And I was like a proud father when they went through the, the water quality is great. The pH is great. It's clear. It's fast. It's cold. And then they shocked it. And in a hundred meters of a creek that, I mean, you could stand with one foot on either side of it. Mm-hmm. They shocked a hundred meters of that back and forth. And there were uh, 15 brown trout in there. The biggest one, the biggest one was nine inches. The smallest one was fish of the year. So even though it's not a great trout stream to fish Mm -hmm. because it's so small, they're reproducing in there. Then they're going down Creek and, you know, they're following it down, going into the, the class one. And so all of a sudden we're a class one trout stream. We went from being nothing to being a class one trout stream. (laughs) And the stream that it empties into went from a class two to a class one because of the reproducing brown trout that were in there and the numbers they saw and the same thing. And so the whole valley became healthier from a water perspective. Mm-hmm. And some of it was because of the change in managed land practices with us. And then we did a, a spring development project that was funded by Natural Resource Conservation Service in a EQIP, which is an environmental quality incentive program thing. We still had to put money into it and effort and all of that, but there was some funding available for it. And it seemed like the right thing to do. So right. we dug out this spring, we put this, you know, it was running through the pasture. Otherwise the cattle were doing all, and it goes into a tank and it empties out the other side, drops into that creek. Um, so all of these combination practices, we've got, I mean, there's trout are a pretty good indicator of high quality water, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, I was kind of hoping for some brookies, but um, yeah. he was kind of like, yeah, they're probably in here. 
just not right here. And then mm-hmm. I know they are in the other the other branch of the crick. And I'm not sure. going to tell you what crick that is. You can figure it out. <laughs> but you and I can talk about that later. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's awesome. And it's it really is. It's always incredible when you see the results of that happen, you know, over the span of just a couple of years and how you can go from something that's hot, muddy, virtually unable to sustain, you know, much life aside from, you know, leeches and, you know, maybe a handful of crayfish to now all of a sudden you've got a class one trout stream in your yard. Yeah, that is pretty that, cool. That, that's phenomenal. I, where I grew up, I, uh, we, we had a manure spill about a half mile up the road, um, from where I, from my, my, the, the, the property I grew up on at my folks place. Um, and just having to watch that thing, uh, you know, completely die out. And, you know, I was like three or four at the time, but then all through elementary school, getting to watch the DNR come out and they, you know, do their, all their testing on the water quality. And then all of a sudden some crayfish or crayfish showed up. And then the next summer, some sculpins showed up. And then mm-hmm. after that, they were like, okay, well, maybe we'll start shocking this. And I think I remember getting off the bus in like fifth grade and the shocking team was down there. And I, I just was like, just gung ho to watch those guys and just see if anything came up, you know, just loving fish and all that. And yeah. all of a sudden white bellies start showing up out of the undercuts and all that. Yeah, stuff. Yeah. And they're like, Holy smokes. And you know, just being able to see that and watch that, uh, you know, kind of come back and uh, you know, especially at you know, such a young age too, being able to have that impression from like from that team where they, I remember they let me slap them on the, uh, the measuring board and everything. Oh, sure. and, and so they can uh, get all their data collection and all that. Well, what just, a great, what a great uh, conservation lesson for a kid, you know? Yeah. And those yeah. are the kinds of things we go back to that other part of the conversation. When we were talking about that. Those are the kinds of things. I think those are the experiences. Well, we didn't hardly talk about deer hunting at all. Right. Mm-hmm. or anything else. We really talked about those kinds of experiences. Right. Um, right. And Absolutely. I think that's uh, something that we could do a better job of when you were talking about getting things, what we've been getting wrong, what we've been getting mm-hmm. right. I think we could do a better job of, of helping people to understand the greater view of conservation and um, how, how it's all connected. Absolutely. Yeah. Doug, we've been going for about two hours now. I know I told you this was going to be a one hour episode. Um, Real quick, where can folks, uh, <laughs> real quick, where can folks go to find you um, and find more information on uh, both yourself and on sharing the land? So my Instagram is at Doug Duren, oddly enough, um, D-O-U-G-D-U-R-E-N. My website is DougDuren.com. Um, sharing the land is at sharing the land on Instagram and also um, sharingland.com. Um, those are the two places you can find me and find us and, and those stories I was telling you about in those videos, mm-hmm. um, all that stuff is in there. Um, and I appreciate anybody, uh, going there. We, we do sell merch, uh, stuck during merch. We've got some sharing land stuff too. And all of the profits from that go into things like the dumpster program or the sharing land program to offset any of the costs that, um, don't get covered by our sponsors and and that sort of stuff. We're doing this stuff. We try to make it no low cost or no cost to the people who are getting involved. Um, You know, it's, I think it's important that people understand that there's a cost to doing conservation and there's a cost to um, going out hunting and and that sort of stuff. But we also like to um, get people involved 
um, without you know having to spend a bunch of money on it on the front end. Right, right, absolutely. Well, folks, be sure to go out and uh, give Doug and Sharing the Land a follow. Go check out uh, all the awesome content he's got there as well as on the website. Um, Doug, thank you so much for your time. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I'm hoping this isn't going to be the last time that uh, we get to chat. That's all for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for tuning in. If you dig this show, be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever it is that you get your podcasts. While you're at it, if you could leave me a five-star review, I would very much appreciate that. You can also follow along with my outdoor adventures on Instagram at the Wisconsin Sportsman or at How to Hunt Deer. That's also the best way to get a hold of me. Suggest topics, guests, or questions that you'd like me to explore on the show. Big thanks to our partners, Tacticam, Huntworth, and Onyx. Please go support the brands that support this show. And if you're looking for more great outdoor content, check out the sportsmansempire.com where you'll find my other podcast, the How to Hunt Deer podcast, as well as a ton of other awesome outdoor podcasts. And until next time, make sure you make the time to get outside and enjoy the incredible natural resources that are ours as Wisconsin sportsmen.